Good day, mate. 40 here. So apparently three United States servicemen were just killed in Jordan. I didn't know we had troops in Jordan. Is it, is it really in America's best interest to have uh, troops in Jordan? Let's get something here from uh, Fox News. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fox News Live. I'm Arthel Neville. Hi, Eric. Hi, Arthel, everyone. I'm Eric Sean. You know, for weeks, the Biden administration has been accused of not responding forcefully enough against the continuing attacks by Iranian-backed proxies like the Houthis, who have been targeting shipping and our forces. Now, the tragedy that many feared has been realized. Well, President Biden... Ah, uh, wait a second. This is really strange framing of the story. It's not really that the United States has not been responding forcefully enough. About why does the United States have so many military forces and bases in the Middle East, including in countries where we're not wanted, such as Syria? Right, we have military bases in Syria against the will of the Syrian government. All right, that's insane. Like, why do we have military bases in Jordan? Respond as President Ronald Reagan did in the 1980s when Iran attacked our forces. Reagan retaliated against Iranian assets directly and took out half of Iran's navy. In a statement released moments... Yeah, and Iranian-based proxy forces, what, uh, killed approximately 350 U.S. Marines out of Lebanon in, what, was it 1982-83? And then the United States promptly left the country and withdrew its forces. To go, President Biden says that the attack was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups in, operating in Syria and Iraq... The question, what will happen Let's go next? to Lucas. Uh, <laughs> the radical Iranian-backed forces. Okay. So first of all, I doubt that these forces are acting at the direction of Iran. All right. These are forces. These are entities that have their own interests that are not always identical with that of Iran, and they operate uh, independently of Iran's wishes. I, I would guarantee you that Iran did not commit command direct attacks on U.S. forces because it's not in Iran's interest to have some kind of uh, direct military uh, battle with the United States. And then as far as them being radical, yeah, I suspect that these groups are radical in the pursuit of their self-interest. That, that's why I like Narcos. I just watched the eight-part Netflix series, Griselda, about the uh, drug, drug uh, king woman, <laughs> godmother, Griselda Blanco. And I, I love these stories because you get raw, unfiltered human nature in its desires for, for fame, for pleasure, for, for power, and for, for, for status, and for command, and for just, you know, wiping out one's enemies, taking revenge, right? We all have these impulses in the, in the narco trade as it's, as it's portrayed in these various dramas. It's just so raw. That, that was the other fun thing about covering the pornography industry is that there was a lot less repression all right. A lot more honesty in some things than you get in regular life. Yeah, I'm sorry, Eric. Let's go to Lucas Tomlinson now. He's live at the White House. Lucas, what more can you tell us? Well, Arthel, this is the deadliest attack on American forces in the Middle East since the October 7th Hamas massacre. As you mentioned last night, a drone strike killed three U.S. troops and wounded 25 at a base in northeast Jordan near the border with Syria. That's according to the White House. President Biden releasing a statement moments ago which says, quote, 
While we are still gathering the facts of the attack, we know it was carried out by radical Iran-backed militant groups operating in Syria and Iraq. Jill and I join the families and friends of our fallen and Americans across the country in grieving the loss of these warriors in this despicable and wholly unjust attack. Now, there have been now over 159 attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria and now Jordan over the past three months. The U.S. has responded with airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. And, and remember, U.S. forces are not wanted in Syria, right? They are imposed on Syria against the wishes of the Syrian government. Uh, if China had military forces in the United States, right, you don't think we'd, we'd try to attack those? Syria, but the bulk have been in Yemen since the beginning of the month. There have been increasing calls, as you mentioned, Eric, for the U.S. to strike back much harder. U.S. warships continue shooting down drones and missiles from Iran's proxy forces off the coast of Yemen. There have also been calls for the U.S. to strike the source, and that's inside Iran. The names of those fallen has not been released yet. So, so there's an enormously powerful, influential, but very tiny in numbers lobby in the U.S. for a direct military conflagration with Iran, which I believe would be an absolute disaster. But you see this lobby exposed most dramatically on Fox News, which has been lobbying for direct American war with Iran for, what, uh, at least uh, 15 years now? Subject to next of kin notifications, Eric and Arthel. All right, Lucas Tomlinson, thank you very much. Live at the White House and right now joining us on the phone is Chief National Security Correspondent Jennifer Griffin. Uh, Jennifer, any word from the Pentagon? Well, Arthel, we have received a um, a notification from CENTCOM, a statement in which they confirm the deaths of those three uh, U.S. troops. But I'm also hearing reports that up to 25 Americans may have been injured in that attack on the base in northern Jordan. This is a very significant escalation, as Lucas reported. Uh, this is uh, bound to test not only the White House, but also U.S. Central. Okay, so if you have a lot of inviting targets and you strongly incentivize attacks on those targets, then inevitably you're going to have conflicts like this. But what's really going on is not that one particular Iranian proxy force you know, finally attacked the United States. It's like, why do we have so many inviting targets in the Middle East when our primary geopolitical enemy and our primary geopolitical rival is China? Right? This is just a distraction. We have no vital national strategic security interests here. And yet we have this, this crazy number of U.S. bases. It, it would, it's akin to, to encouraging you know, young women to dress in a particularly alluring and slutty fashion and walk in bad parts of town where there's you know, very little effective law enforcement. You know, what do you think is going to happen? We know that there has been a great deal of frustration among top uh, senior U.S. military officials thinking that uh, that the U.S. needed to strike back harder against Iran, that Iran was not. Yeah, so that's the frustration that gets articulated. But I suspect the frustration in the U.S. military that does not get articulated is why are we sitting out here as, as sitting ducks for these kind of attacks when there aren't any vital U.S. strategic interests at heart? Greetings. Glad to see you recovered enough to straight. Yeah. So I don't know. Tell me about your flu and, and COVID experience. So last uh, Friday evening, I just felt a profound lethargy. I, I just didn't want to do anything. So for about 30 hours, I was just 
lethargic. I didn't want to gather my documents to file my taxes for the year 2023. I didn't want to gather my proof of health insurance documentation. Uh, I didn't want to gather my um, my my new CPAP and put it together with with the hose and the face mask and all that. I didn't want to you know get it all together. And then boom, after about 24 to 38 hours of feeling lethargic, then boom, the 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 flu hit me. And it uh, hit me, you know, pretty hard. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday started to recover. I walked about two miles. Wednesday, uh, walked and, and biked about six miles. So I started feeling better. And now I don't know what flu and COVID is like for you. For me, I'm pr- pretty sure this was the flu. Uh, now I'm in the depression phase. So my father, after a strong bout of the flu, he would also feel depressed often for weeks afterwards. And so I'm kind of in the in the the, the depressed lull after after getting the flu. Then last, uh, last night I had some cheese enchiladas and about two hours later, I wanted to engage in an Australian yawn. And, and it's like, I just felt increasingly crummy last night. It's like, oh no, I'm getting a relapse. Now all my hopes and dreams, all my plans are going to be for naught. I don't want to do the Australian yawn again. So what did I do? I turned to Kroger's maximum strength stomach relief. I took uh, a good swig of this and uh, got some sleep and uh, starting to feel much better. Brandon says, neurovirus is a common stomach flu going around. Incidentally, shouldn't uh, Dennis Prager enforce higher modesty standards on his co-host, Julia Hartman? I don't think so because modesty standards are relative to the, uh, are partly relative to the surrounding culture. Dennis Prager is not an Orthodox Jew. So for the culture that uh, Dennis and Julie swim in, uh, I think most of the time she's perfectly, perfectly uh, uh, normal. And modesty is not even necessarily primarily about dress, right? It's, it's in large part demeanor, right? So you can dress in a highly modest way and have a highly slutty demeanor. So there's a saying in marginal parts of uh, more modern Orthodox Jewish life, that the, the longer the skirt, all right, the more modest the skirt, the quicker it comes off, you know, God forbid. And there's not a strict correlation there. But yeah, I mean, I'm personally attracted to, to women who look very nice, very prim, and act in a very proper fashion in, in public, but behind closed doors, they're a lot, uh, lot less inhibited. But yeah, there are many dimensions uh, for, for modesty beyond, beyond dress. Dress, particularly with women, is probably the most important component because men are so visually focused. But uh, get a little bit more here from Fox. Getting the deterrent message. As Lucas mentioned, there have been 159 attacks on almost daily on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria and now Jordan. Uh, it was only a matter of time before some of those... Uh, those... So... Muslims punch way above their weight in acts of of terrorism, and they're the most formidable religious-based force in the world today. But what you frequently get with with many Muslim attacks, and where October 7 was particularly an exception, is a very high degree of incompetence. So what was stunning, most stunning thing for me about the October 7 Hamas attacks on southern Israel was the high degree of competence exhibited by Hamas and the very low degree of competence exhibited by Israel, which goes against stereotypes. Okay, we tend to think of uh, the Israelis as being more competent. 
And uh, the Houthi is certainly attracting a lot of attention, but don't seem to be particularly competent. Single attacks against ships. Uh, I think they're finding difficulty in targeting. They're also, I suspect, finding it difficult to stay concealed until they can fire. The continued fallout from the tensions in the Middle East and a tanker with links to the UK was on fire for several hours in the Gulf of Aden yesterday, uh, earlier today after being hit by a missile fired by the uh, by the Houthi uh, rebels. The Iran-backed movement, based in Yemen, of course, said that it had targeted the Marlin Lalanda on Friday in response to what it described as American-British aggression. Well, the UK Defence Secretary Grant Shapps has called the attack intolerable and illegal. Let's speak to Chris Parry now, who is former Royal Navy Rear Admiral. He's also served as a Director General at the Ministry of Defence and as a NATO Commander himself. Chris, hello, good evening. Uh, good evening, Daryl. Just a series, um, just a, the latest, latest really, a series of attacks, isn't it, in the Red Sea that just do not seem to be letting up? Well, yeah, they're getting a bit sporadic, though. Um, if you remember, they, they started with a big wave of drones and uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles and anti-ship cruise missiles. Uh, and since they've been attacked and quite a lot of their systems have, have been destroyed, uh, what we're seeing now is almost single attacks against ships uh, I think they're finding difficulty in targeting. They're also, I suspect, finding it difficult to stay concealed until they can fire. Oh, I think um, we lost. Wow, we get these long breaks, pauses. I'm trying to run a professional show. This is simply not acceptable. Benjamin Netanyahu uh, is suspected of you know, having the desire to continue the war for as long as possible because during wartime, obviously, the nation is, uh, to all intents and purposes, united around the war effort. Uh, and therefore, it's considered inappropriate to talk politics. So at least 159 attacks on U.S. forces since October 17. Yeah, because they're there, right? It's in Iran's interests and in the interests of large parts of the Arab Islamic world to drive American forces out of the Middle East. Like, what country, what people, what group, what nationality, what, what religion wants the military forces of an outgroup you know, occupying the high ground in military terms, cultural terms, economic terms in your own land. Like every living thing wants to create the conditions around it most suitable for its thriving. Now, four months into the Israel-Gaza conflict, Benjamin Netanyahu faces a war on the home front too, amid mounting political pressures. The Israeli Prime Minister has been accused of failing to foresee the Hamas attacks. Polls show yeah, this is a fascinating case of a divergence in interest between Bibi Netanyahu and Israel. Right, Bibi Netanyahu wants to continue the war for as long as possible to avoid being ousted as political leader. Probably not in Israel's best interests or America's best interests or uh, the best interests of the country surrounding Israel. So he would lose an election. He could even face jail. Matthew Campbell, foreign features editor for the Times and Sunday Times, has been writing about this. Right again, this is why I like uh, Narcos dramas. There's a terrific eighty-part series from Colombian TV on the life and times of Pablo Escobar. And as I was watching that show, I developed an emotional and, and rational understanding why so many people in Latin America engage in the drug trade. So why would a strongly identifying in-group care about negative consequences to an out-group? So it suddenly made sense to me why people in Latin America would want to profit from the drug trade when the victims of the drug trade, as, as they see it anyway, are primarily gringos or members of an outgroup. So there are many things that uh, TV and film does better than novels. But the one thing that a novel does better than any other medium is show you an interior point of view. So, you know, what's it like for the participants? But you can sometimes get that from movies and TV. And what I liked in the Griselda show, you could see her, you could identify with her, right? This, this, 
horribly murderous, cold-blooded, you know, vicious uh, drug kingpin, and you could identify with her just trying to make her way in the world, trying to gain revenge against men who'd screwed her over, sometimes literally, and the the abuse and the sexism that she would encounter, but you, you, you were able to identify somewhat with her, and these raw drives that, that nature and evolution have imprinted in all of us for, for pleasure, for, for power, for, for strength, right, for financial security, right, these base drives. You see them in such an unfiltered way with these uh, narco dramas like Griselda on Netflix, which was a fun, fun uh, eight-part series. And then you see it also with the behavior of Bibi Netanyahu, where he is strongly incentivized to continue this war in the Middle East for as long as possible to avoid losing political power. This he's with us now. Morning. Morning, Chloe. So how much pressure, real pressure, is Benjamin Netanyahu under at home? Well, he is under enormous pressure um, from conflicting sides. On the one hand, you've got his right wing, uh, which uh, is worried that he's not actually going in hard enough in Gaza and that he should be doing more. Um, you know, while Netanyahu is under attack and, you know, in Europe and in America uh, for inflicting devastation and enormous suffering on Gaza with the deaths of 25,000 Palestinians, three quarters of them women and children, uh, we are told, um, on, on the right wing, you know, it's considered uh, that he's not basically pursuing the war with enough vigor and that, you know, they shouldn't be letting in humanitarian aid and that they should be basically moving the population of Khan Yunus. That's this town in the south of Gaza, home to about 200,000 people, and the latest focus of intense fighting, that they should be relocated somewhere. Uh, so there's that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got... Well, it's like uh, old times. We've got Ricardo in the chat. We've got Elliot Blatt, Autistic Merit. All right. So this is this is my favorite song these days. The sun is high. It's the start of a long, hot summer. All right. It's almost the end of the National Football League season. So we're going to have to find you know ways to sustain ourselves over the next nine lonely months. But here's an opportunity for you and I hanging out with each other. And if someday we find we ever have to say goodbye, we'll be running back these memories to relive time after time because these are the days of our lives. That we'll always remember is to the craziest times that we've been through together. These are the days. The, the families of the hostages that are still being held in these appalling conditions. What is it about Ricardo? Like, bro, every time I see you, I just want to break out into song. Not, not in a gay way. Tunnels in Gaza. Hundred of hundred have been uh, released uh, in December. There are still 137 or so. I'm told uh, some of them may not be alive. Uh, but there's a there's a session of talks going on in Paris today, actually, uh, on this question uh, to negotiate a, a ceasefire, uh, and it's hoped that this might result in. Uh, a month's ceasefire, allowing another wave of hostages to be released. First of all, women and children, the injured, and then perhaps uh, another month's cessation of hostages. Look, just as much as, as you, I want to get to the women of the far right swimsuit edition. But there's all this breaking news, right? Three U.S. servicemen killed in Jordan. How can we look away from the Middle East, right? Get to the women of the far right soon. For the remainder of hostages to be released, uh, men and soldiers who've been... So if you want to hear the voice of the establishment, right, super establishment perspectives on the news, I, I like Times Radio, right? It's a podcast, live streaming, talk radio format by the Times of London newspaper. Captured in the fighting. From a political, uh, so, I was just going to say from a political perspective, does it benefit Benjamin Netanyahu to keep the war going? Because presumably no nation wants to get rid of their leader during wartime. But if there was to be an end to the war or even a, a lengthy ceasefire, could that give critics time to oust him? Well, you put your finger on this very interesting, yeah. 
Right, so the world can look very different in, in a short period of time. So two months ago, John J. Mearsheimer was saying he could conceive of no possible way that the West would stop arming Ukraine, the United States would stop arming Ukraine, whether Donald Trump was in power, whether Joe Biden gets reelected, he saw as, as far out as we can look that the U.S. is going to keep funding Ukraine. Now, right, the U.S. House of Representatives has refused to sign off on aid for Ukraine and still balking at signing off on new aid for Ukraine and aid for Israel. And uh, in Europe, right, we've got this growing populist movement that also doesn't want to fund Ukraine. So times can change very quickly, right? It, two months ago, it looked like absolute U.S. political reality and consensus that uh, we would continue funding Ukraine. Now, the not risk, so obviously, much. with some of the right-wing populists, and that's a risk across the Atlantic as well as uh, as well as here, is their uh, desire to uh, come to terms with Putin on terms that might uh, be much more appealing to Putin than he would currently get. As the European Union faces European Parliament elections, and this week a report by the European Council on Foreign Relations, which is a Berlin-based think tank, forecasts that anti-EU populists uh, will either be the largest party or dominant in 18 of the 27 EU member states. Uh, so uh, what would this so-called political earthquake across the continent this June look like, and how might it affect our survival? Right, so this isn't primarily about funding, right? This is primarily about a distrust of elites, right? There's a growing populist backlash throughout the first world, right, against the, the consensus of elites, and this is just uh, one, one reflection of that. Right, back here to Times of London how Europe's growing far-right populism will affect Ukraine and the war. Even Rogers was the British permanent representative to the EU under David Cameron and uh, Theresa May. Uh, welcome to uh, joining us here on Times Radio. Good morning. First of all, do you share the misgivings that are reflected in this European Council on Foreign Relations survey that there is a storm coming of a rise of populism in the European Union? Well, I don't know whether they're misgivings. I think it's a very interesting uh, piece of work, uh, analysis and polling. Uh, I think it's quite likely to be reasonably accurate. I think uh, Europe is collectively going to move further to the right. And the conventional right, if I can put it like that, a combination of the Golists and the Christian Democrats are suffering a bit, although they will gain some uh, seats in Spain, uh, I think, and no doubt one or two other places. And it's various elements of the more populist uh, further right that are likely to gain most. And the Social Democrats will, uh, I suspect, lose ground, probably um, Emmanuel Macron's uh, more centrist party. Maybe. So, yeah, usually the perspectives, uh, opinions, desires of a uh, majority will not count for much in, in foreign policy. But under certain circumstances, right, you're getting this growing revolt against elites, which will lead to probably genuine foreign policy changes. We're already seeing that in the U.S., right? We haven't, you know, turned over billions more to Ukraine, and this is sweeping Europe. They lose ground as well. So I think the analysis is, is probably pretty ac accurate. Then well, it comes to the question of what that might mean if it, if it happens. Wait, that so in the United States, right, very few elections get uh, decided on foreign policy. But the way things are breaking right now in foreign policy, pundits from, from the left or the right, and I believe they're, they're correct, right, this is all breaking in the interests of Donald Trump and against the interests of Joe Biden. This is Ross Douthat uh, three days ago. I'm just saying George <laughs> W. Bush should have won, should have won by more, which could be cited as proof that 
only elites cared about foreign policy in that election, or it could be cited as proof that actually the Kerry shtick was fairly effective. It just wasn't effective enough to overcome Bush's advantage on the economy, which again is not. So if I were president of the United States, what would I do about this? I would get our forces out of the Middle East. I don't see any vital strategic or national security interests that we have in being in the Middle East. So I would pull our forces out. All right, that's far more important than, than saving face. Right? Saving face doesn't really matter much in terms of international power. Right? There are two things that determine international power, right? your economic power and your military power. Right? Making a shambolic exit from Vietnam or from Afghanistan, right? that gets a ton of coverage in the news media. And they'll try to correlate that with Joe Biden's low poll numbers that they plunged after America's shambolic exit from Afghanistan. But that's just the nonsense that uh, pundits talk about, right? What, what determines your international power is economic power and, and military power. It, it is not determined by the grace and ease with which you exit a conflict, right? Sometimes it's far better to get out of a fight ungracefully, humiliatingly than to gracefully hang around in a fight that's against your national security interests. So if I were president of the United States, I would be primarily focused on containing the rise of China, and I would withdraw aid from Ukraine. I would uh, stop aiding Israel. I think Israel is strong enough to stand on its own two feet. I think it's both in America's best interest and Israel's best interest if there was a more distant relationship between the United States and Israel. And I'd pull American forces out of the Middle East let uh, the peoples and the countries and the nations and the religions of the Middle East you know, fight and create you know, their, their own existence free of American interference. All right? We don't have any vital national security interests going on there. Not how anyone remembers that election, I, I agree, but that's what the economic fundamentalists would say. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I think that the other question that I have is like, how do you define what is a foreign issue and what is a domestic issue? And, you know, I, I have this theory that things that happen abroad sort of take time to kind of percolate through the aquifer of American politics and become domestic issues. And I think like the Iraq war, it just it took some time for like what was happening over there to sort of fully work its way into our politics over here. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm wondering in this moment is like, has that time continuum actually collapsed? Like, you know, obviously we're living in the latter days of globalization and the smaller world and all of that kind of stuff. But it does feel like, you know, things out there and things right here are collapsing into our politics in a closer way. And that's partly because of migration. And OK, I'm going to jump in here. And so I'm, I'm, just, just, I'm just trying to figure out how to spell aquifer. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, just like look, I'm just looking it up. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm going to draw the distinction of with the Iraq war. We had troops on the ground. We had lots of troops on the ground. We had troops on the ground in Afghanistan. We do not have troops on the ground right now. So you can collapse all you want to, but people are not going to care about Ukraine. The one we don't have troops on the ground. All right. This was recorded three days ago, right after three. American service members were just killed in Jordan. Situation that I think could be the exception is Israel. Yeah. The Gaza war has become a domestic policy issue that is splitting along unusual political lines. And I do think that Israel tends to be unique, but I think it is the exception to the rule. Yeah. But I think that there's something to this notion that, um, you know, we expect a commander in chief to have a certain kind of like, I mean, Ross flecked at this, the, the Afghanistan withdrawal moment for Biden. I mean, that was the moment when his approval rating went negative and um, right. it, it hasn't recovered since. Um, why do you think that was such a kind of hinge point for, for the Biden presidency? 
I mean, I don't think we know for sure that Biden's approval ratings wouldn't have started sinking without that, right? It, sure, it was yeah. an inflection point. But I think, you know, I think if you'd flash forward six months or a year and asked voters what they cared about and why they were down on Joe Biden, they would have mostly said inflation and gas prices. Look, Joe Biden's never been popular, right? He's never been popular over the course of his, his political career. So why Joe Biden drops in polls, it's not really that significant a question. The question is, you know, why is he ever briefly popular? He won the 2020 election because enough voters in the suburbs changed the direction of their vote from 2016 towards the Democrats because they were revolting against Donald Trump. That's right, not Afghanistan. And even when the Washington Post published their version of the Pentagon Papers as the Afghanistan Papers showing sort of how, you know, America's military and political leadership had sort of botched Afghanistan without admitting it for years and years and years, none of that made a huge difference politically. What made a huge difference politically was, one, things are going really badly, and two, our soldiers are there. I think a question is whether social media in that creates that kind of immediacy that you're talking about, Lydia, for even for crises that don't involve American troops directly. That seemed to be true for the, at least for the beginning of the Ukraine war. American boots weren't on the ground, but we had this kind of crazy sort of transmission of not just images, but video and, you know, sort of you could watch the war unfold. Right. And there's been versions of that with Israel and Gaza. But I'm less sure how much that changes American public opinion as opposed to like crazy online discourse, which are still overlapping, but not completely the same thing. I think there's another way in which the withdrawal from Afghanistan has an impact, whether it's it's sort of a, a lasting enough impact to matter in the in the election later this year. I, I don't know. But the thing about the Afghanistan withdrawal is that in a way it was sort of Biden decisiveness saying like this is never going to be good. So we just have to get out. Um, but it looked like it sort of made him seem like he was not in control of a situation as you know, the way it unfolded so chaotically. And so in that sense, the way Biden ended up looking you know, weakened his kind of the overall perception of voters who would care about foreign policy, even in this kind of minimalist way. If you listen to people on the campaign trail talk about Biden versus Trump, you'll get a fair number of them that are like, you know, yes, Trump is crazy. He is bombastic. He is erratic. He is unhinged. But that's what we need in this scary time because he's dealing with crazy people. So it is Trump's projection of strength that these folks like, even though they acknowledge that it is not exactly a sort of balanced approach. Well, and it's interesting, right, because if you see the way the debate about Ukraine is playing out, uh, the Ukraine funding is playing out, you know, which is a sort of classic foreign policy issue, the trade-off that is being pushed is explicitly like, we don't want to fund the war in Ukraine unless we like secure our southern border. And like, which of those is a domestic issue and which of those is a foreign issue? You know, I think most people would think of immigration as being largely a domestic issue, but it's it's striking to me that those are the those are the things that are being discussed. I mean, you know, our, our colleague Tom Friedman argued this week that, you know, funding the war in Ukraine with no cost of American troops is like the best security bargain. And that's sort of one perspective. Right. But um, but I think that there is like a very real discussion going on about, you know, how we're spending money. And I think that's a very politically potent question. Well, Trump's republicanism is very isolationist. And that is one way that he is bashing Nikki Haley on the trail, which is that she's a warmonger. She is. the Right. So John Mearsheimer said that he voted for Hillary Clinton in 2020 after voting for Bernie in the primaries. He voted for Joe Biden, he voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, Joe Biden in 2020, because he thought that these two would be better for securing and developing our alliances with allies, which is which is incredibly important. But the number of missteps or unnecessary risky interventions overseas, I would suspect that Mishima now at least regrets his 2020 vote. So, yeah, uh, on the face of it, uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats are appear more competent at developing our alliances, which is 
integral part of maintaining American dominance in the world. And so uh, and just that that issue on its face, I think the Democrats are more confident, better situated. I, I think that uh, Donald Trump, you know, unnecessarily strained, damaged our relations with, with allies, such as going against the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But then Joe Biden and his foreign policy team just outdid all the benefits of working with allies in that they started working with allies towards, you know, crazily unnecessarily risky things like uh, fomenting a war with Russia in Ukraine and fomenting a war with China over Taiwan and fomenting war in the Middle East. The old school hawkish Republican. And Ross, you you kind of have sympathies in that direction. I have some sympathy, yeah. I have some sympathy for that critique of Nikki Haley. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the but to keep it on the, you know, what hurts presidents. Right. I think what unites the border and foreign policy is that they are areas where you can say that presidents get punished by voters for a perception of the world being out of control. Yeah. And I think this is generally one of Biden's problems that even though the U.S. and its allies have done reasonably well in propping up Ukraine, right, that when you combine Russia invading Ukraine with our southern border is out of control, with war in the Middle East and the Red Sea shipping lanes are being closed and um, Iran and <laughs> Pakistan are firing missiles at each other, which maybe from a you know grand strategy point of view doesn't matter to the U.S., but adds to this sense of a world where the Pax Americana is breaking down. And so it's not even sort of one discrete foreign policy crisis that's a problem. It's the whole thing. And this is where the sort of crude heuristic of, you know, Donald Trump seems tough and Joe Biden doesn't can matter politically because the reality is that a lot of these crises were not happening during Trump's presidency, which was chaotic in other ways. But Putin invaded during Biden's presidency. Yep. Hamas attacked during Biden's presidency. And that's that I, I think that is the kind of thing that voters pay attention to. And Trump explicitly claims credit for it not happening on his watch. Yep. Let's leave it there. But before we go to the break, I want to read a listener email we've got from Kevin. Kevin writes, Biden would have more support if his foreign policies were as sensible and humane as his domestic policies. He should end our war with Russia, our Gaza genocide, and our trade war with China. Wow. Let's unpack that. We'll be so I'm not sure that this one seems to stick like it used to. I think you can see in Kevin's email, the listener email that we read just before the break, one of the reasons why the current set of foreign policy crises doesn't help Joe Biden, um, because Kevin was basically arguing for a mix of policies that could all be classified as sort of on the left in the sense of being sort of, you know, anti-war, anti-intervention. But that combination really doesn't map onto, onto any sort of political uh, constituency. Yeah. Network. Exactly. Not onto Kevin. Of, you know, talking about a conflict in incentives, right? You want to get into U.S. foreign policy, right? You want to become part of the elite in American foreign policy. What's going to give more meaning and excitement and prestige to you, an interventionist foreign policy or a non-interventionist foreign policy? Obviously, you can have more excitement and more opportunities to be doing something that looks prestigious, right? You're saving the world. You're stopping genocide. If you have an interventionist foreign policy, so the incentives for the people carrying out foreign policy for the United States run in the opposite direction of the best interests of the United States, which is generally for a non-military interventionist foreign policy. Well, I mean, you know, it, it does. It maps onto, I, I should say, a small and specific part of the American left. But that is not that significant. The sort of normal democratic stance has been we should support Ukraine's war with Russia. They don't say our war with Russia. Um, and then there's a kind of bipartisan consensus right now that we need to be tougher 
on China, although that has critics on the left and on the center. And then Gaza and Israel is the issue that just clearly divides Biden's coalition in big and important ways domestically. And, you know, having an issue front and center that divides your coalition is just not helpful when you're running for reelection. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, that there's it, a truism for you. Yeah, I mean, the Israel-Gaza <laughs> situation you, does feel really different from most foreign policy issues and different from the way that Israel issues have played out in, in the past. The thing about, about the situation in Israel and in Gaza that I think is specifically perilous for Joe Biden is that there's specific constituencies in his uh, coalition that may just, like, not show up um, because they're really angry and upset about the way that, that Joe right. Biden has um, comported himself. You know, I look at I look at the state of Michigan, right, which yep. is always a, a battleground state and is, you know, he won very, very narrowly. There is a significant Arab American vote in uh, Michigan that um, you know, I, I, just seeing these interviews with Muslim voters in swing states and saying, like, I've never in my life been a single issue voter, but now I'm a single issue voter and this is my issue. Um, so I think it's, you know, yes, it's foreign policy, but it's clear that there are you know other voters who really like Joe Biden's, you know, staunch support of Israel and that will politically be important for him. But I do think that in like very ways specific to this situation, it's likely to play out domestically um, in a, what's going to be a very Oh, I think you're totally right. And it goes beyond even the Arab American community. I mean, this has Absolutely. become this has become a part of American culture wars. You have younger voters, younger progressives in particular. And again, I have college students and, you know, a high school senior and their friends and stuff. They talk about this as a defining issue as whether or not they support Joe Biden. And it has become like a an international version of Black Lives Matter to some degree. And in fact, you see Black Lives Matter and a lot of black activists aligning with the pro-Palestinian movement and turning it into a much bigger issue. You know, you get a lot of talk about colonizers and oppressors, and it has it has just kind of folded itself into other issues that are really, really hot-button issues domestically. I mean, it toppled two college presidents. Yeah, uh, and have university league, presidents right? being yeah. hauled before Congress and run out for not being sufficiently hard on anti-Semitism on their campuses, theoretically. So it, it is spiraling. Although that's not why the Harvard president was... It is exactly why they went after her. Yeah, but, and you but know. <laughs> she, she, she survived that part of it. She didn't survive that she is for what it's all about. There are people who see American foreign policy as mainly a means of national security, like protecting the American people from foreign threats, protecting your allies, securing the border, controlling immigration. You know, in this world, for instance, Ukraine doesn't matter, right? Yep. Um, then there are Americans who see foreign policy mainly as a way to project and spread American values or what they believe should be, you know, bedrock American values, and that's human rights or freedom or prosperity. You know, in this world, supporting Ukraine um, can be urgent. Yeah, and there's just no evidence that we can do that effectively, All right? It is the plaything of a highly influential neoconservative group, which has very little popular support. You know, in this world, you become a single-issue voter over, over, over what's happening in Gaza. So it's not just, like, how people feel about this part of the world, or it's also what they think American power is for. But generally, I think the second group tends to be much smaller than the first group, the kind of people who affirmatively care about using U.S. power to shape events in distant lands are a narrower, you know, they're a more elite, if we if we will, sort of or, you know, well-educated, you know, very politically engaged group. Um, whereas. Yeah. So in usually in foreign policy, a tiny number of elite, highly engaged, highly influential, highly funded People will have far more influence than popular opinion. Perhaps aid to Ukraine might be one of those rare examples where popular opinion outweighs elite tendencies. It's the group that are sort of natural isolationists represents a much larger share of the country. And I think what's happening in the border debate is not that people are 
you know, have this sort of very literal minded view of the federal budget where it's like we're taking five dollars from the border and spending five dollars in Ukraine. Instead, it's more of a sense of like if we can't trust our leadership to, you know, take care of our own borders, why would we trust them when they go and make policy about Ukraine, a subject about which, you know, people don't care that much. Although I think it's more about sort of the been... trust that is given to elites than like spending in dollars and cents per se. Although there is a strain of the Republican Party that is actually making that. I mean, J Senator J.D. Vance is making that exact argument, which is that right. they want to well, the spend that... that money overseas instead yes. of here at home. It's, it's a great political tool. Right. But I, I just think the money is not the real issue. I, I agree there that that's the rhetoric, but it's but not money, about money. It's about yeah, money, trust. In money is, is a very is a very convenient, uh, you know, unit of measurement. Right. Of like what matters to you. Right. Like it's, uh, <laughs> yes, it you is. Know, so my no, I mean, you know, a, a, it's overwhelmingly the unit of measurement. For everything. It's, but it's like, you know, a budget is a moral document. Right. Like, show me what you spend money on and I'll show you what you care about. Um, I mean, I do think it is striking, though, that there have been and, and maybe this is just recency bias speaking. But like, you know, there have been moments in American history where collecting a coalition that believes in an idea of America as a kind of, you know, to quote a phrase, city on the hill, like a beacon of freedom. Uh, you know, that I think is an appeal that has been meaningful to Americans in pretty large numbers. It might not be the main motivating reason, but I do think that Americans want to think of America as being a strong, virtuous country. I mean, if not, why would we be having these huge debates about, you know, American history and how we talk about America's slavery and colonialism and all these kinds of things if, if we didn't care about the, you know, sort of the fundamentally virtuous way in which America is perceived in the world. There's this peculiar thing where Americans can be up for a kind of isolationism, but it is a kind of city on the hill isolationism. It's like the world is bad and corrupt and we don't want to mess with it and we don't want it to mess with us and we're just going to do our own thing. I think what Americans don't like is a kind of realpolitik, sort of amoral grand strategy. When If Americans are going to be in the world, we want to believe that we're fighting for democracy. Otherwise, we're just going to sort of pull back and do our own thing. Whereas a figure like Henry Kissinger, even though American elites all sort of, you know, liked him and feted him till the end, is, I think, deeply out of step with the national character. Americans don't want to hear arguments about, like, the balance of power and things like that. I and think. they don't want to be the world's policeman. I mean, this is what Trump hits on. He's like, we don't need to be doing this. NATO needs to step up. Europe needs to step up. Well, this should not be our responsibility. In, in a... Right. If you can offload this stuff to other people or recognize that it's uh, other people's problem much more than it's yours, right, that's obviously in your people's best interest. It's obviously in your nation's best interest. Since this collapsing of the foreign and the domestic that we've talked about on, on some of these issues is part of the appeal, I think, of Trumpism. And, and he's pushing back against it with this sort of nationalist populism. Like, what, what, does, what does he keep on saying? If you, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country anymore. That, that erosion of what we think of as, as foreign and domestic between us and them, between there and here, um, that's part of what Trumpism is responding to. And that's, that's part of what he says in, in blunt and sometimes crude ways um, in his campaign. Yeah. But at the same time, and I, I agree with that, but there is also a kind of globalization of nationalist anxiety. <laughs> yes. yes. Like, Irony. Donald Trump succeeds in 2015 and 2016 in part because of things like the Syrian migrant crisis in Europe and some of the Islamic states terrorist attacks in Europe. Now, obviously, there were some terrorist attacks. So what's going to determine who will be elected president in 2024? Events, my dear boy, events. What would determine? Determine whether or not uh, the next president of the United States is successful. Events, my dear boy, events. What will determine if I have a good week? In large part, it will be events. There are certain events that I navigate gracefully and successfully. And there are other types of events that I tend to navigate in a self-destructive, antisocial, embarrassing, awkward fashion. And so too in politics, all right? If, if 
current trends continue, Donald Trump will be elected the next president of the United States, you know, without respect to his you know, lack of obvious leadership abilities. In the U.S. too. But I think the shadow of Europe's challenge with migration and Europe's challenge with radical Islam totally hung over U.S. politics and especially conservative politics at the time when Trump was coming on the scene. And I think that dynamic has sort of obviously continued in various ways that you have a, a globalization of Yeah, Trump obviously has strong isolationist tendencies, which have always held considerable support in the United States. What was George Washington's you know, famous final address? Be, beware of foreign policy entanglements. Ultra wars over nationalism. That's fascinating to watch. Right. And I think like, you know, in, in some ways, the sort of early, early indicator was was Brexit. Right. I mean, I, I remember seeing those results coming in and just, you know, thinking, my God, this thing that never seemed possible was was possible. And uh, and, you know, I don't I don't know that it's particularly worked out very well, but um, here we are. Um, OK, in 15 seconds or less, each of you, <laughs> does foreign policy as an issue favor Trump or Biden in this election? I'm going with Trump. People are feeling surly about life and the world in general. And that tends to come back and bite the president on the butt. Hmm. Yeah, I would I would agree. I think the the whole foreign policy favors the incumbent it does not work this time around when people see sort of a a chaotic world under Biden and a quote unquote strong leader under Donald Trump. Mm. Ross, I, I feel like I should be contrarian, but I agree. Uh, mm. I, I, certainly, I think right now, if the election were held right now, uh, the foreign policy landscape and the situation in the world would be right. So right now, it's pretty obvious that uh, the direction of events is in Donald Trump's uh, favor, and we've got growing far right, pop, well, far right, uh, left, center, whatever you call the populist wave in Europe, right, is going to reduce the chances of substantial funding for Ukraine. And that's what I was going to ask you, because the consequences of that presumably affect the balance of power in the European Parliament, and that in turn will affect who gets the big jobs in the European Commission. Could well do. Uh, I think the smart money is probably still on Ursula von der Leyen coming back for a second term as Commission President, but that's not a sure thing. We've already seen Charles Michel, the current uh, president of the council, who wanted to stand for the European Parliament. Yes, uh, United States, George Floyd or George Washington. Which way, man? Draw from that. That's more related to the risks around Viktor Orban having the rotating presidency uh, of, of the EU in the second half of the year. But it's, um, yeah, it'll be complex on top jobs. I think the bigger issue for me and uh, I think for all of your listeners and everybody else is really what might it mean for Ukraine, um, above all, of course, uh, the appetite in the EU um, to supply arms uh, and to ensure that Ukraine can uh, come out ahead in this war. The risk, obviously, with some of the right-wing populists, and that's a risk across the Atlantic as well as uh, as well as here, is their uh, desire to uh, come to terms with Putin on terms that might uh, be much more appealing to Putin than he would currently get. So that's a big risk. Uh, then beyond the war... As and that really has nothing to do with any particular affection for Vladimir Putin. It's much more a realistic determination of what's in your own nation's best interests, right? So during World War II, we sided with Joseph Stalin against the Nazis, not because, generally speaking, we had great affection for Uncle Joe, right? In a war to the death with the Nazis, yeah, then, under those circumstances, we, we made a common cause with the devil. Okay, I just read... Uh, decent book, a uh, good book by a lefty, Avian Leidig, sociologist, and she's written this book, The Women of the Far Right, Social Media Influences and Online Radicalization. How they use these influencer practices as an effective radicalization strategy. So a lot of the far right women that I detail in the book, they are particularly 
uh, adept at showcasing certain qualities of seeming to be relatable, accessible, and authentic to their followers and, and to mainstream audiences. And I show how this is a strategy that presents an opportunity for far-right actors to deliver propaganda on social media for a legitimizing effect of their political ideology. And I think this is something that is quite different from their male counterparts, for example, because their male counterparts tend to be a lot more um, escalatory in their rhetoric, a lot more violent in their rhetoric, and hence that's why we often see them get banned from platforms quite often. But for these women within the far right, they're very good at traversing that boundary between what is considered to be acceptable speech on these platforms, and that's often because they will cloak it in this acceptable discourse for their followers. Oh, I've got a uh, special guest here, uh, Curious Gazelle. So, welcome to the show, Curious. What's uh, what's going on? Okay, you'll have to unmute yourself. Well, when you're ready to unmute yourself, just uh, jump on in. So, what motivates these women? Did, did you have you looked at all into why 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 paradoxically and or is it paradoxically um, that that they behave that they do this? Uh, I think it can break down into yeah, so many different reasons, and of course hey. it depends on the individual. Um, can you hear me well? <laughs> yes, I can hear you clearly. What's going on? Yeah, um, nothing much. I just wanted to jump on your stream for a bit. Um, I, I feel very curious today. But uh, I don't excellent. know what exactly I'm curious about. <laughs> well, uh, one thing, let's let's uh, pick up on the, the conversation we were having uh, over Twitter. Uh, what's what's an appropriate use of, of satire? And I, I just read a, a terrific book on, on satire and humor, and it made the point mm -hmm. that humor is generally an inefficient form of communication because humor always occurs in the form of a riddle, right? It's a form of play. It is the collision of, of an, you know, one paradigm with another you know, unexpected uh, paradigm, and that's what makes us laugh. So because it's an inefficient form of communication, it's not something you generally want to use with your superiors, your, your bosses, uh, it, mm -hmm. it, and it's not something to use with people who don't want to play with you. But if someone doesn't want to play with you, then using humor, irony, sarcasm, satire is going to rub them the wrong way. So you need a fellow playmate if you're going to have useful uh, humor interactions. Any thoughts on that? No, I, I definitely agree with you that, you know, it takes two to tango. So you need somebody to give that sort of satire back to you or understand where you're coming from. And sometimes you don't really want a satirical response. You're actually, you want somebody to truthfully answer whatever your query or whatever your question may be. So it can get a bit annoying, uh, especially, you know, when you, when you look at the right wing sphere and just, uh, if you just look at political Twitter in general, I, I feel that people are steeped in satire and you can get addicted to that. Yeah, yeah. Did you want to you, continue? Go, yeah. Yeah, go you, yeah, sorry. So you can get addicted to that. And what that means is you, you never can see reality for what it is. Right. And which it's is dangerous. Yeah. And it's also, it's, I, I know I often use humor and satire and irony as a way of keeping other people at arm's length, right? Not, not allowing them in. So if you're trying to have, 
an intimate conversation with someone and they keep using irony and sarcasm, irony and sarcasm is not conducive usually to intimacy unless that person's in a particularly playful mood. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. So what is this stream today about? Ah, <laughs> good. Well, just, just before it started, uh, there, there was a news story about uh, three U.S. servicemen in, in Jordan who'd been killed in a drone strike, and I kind of switched, switched focus. But then I was going to talk about a book I, I just read, Women of the Far Right. Uh, but then there was another book I just read, which kind of formed the basis for our Twitter discussion, and it's called Irony and Outrage, the polarized landscape of rage, fear, and laughter in the United States. And I, I really appreciated how this book, you know, broke down what is humor, right? It's, it's a juxtaposition, mm -hmm. right? Something is not funny without a juxtaposition. And then there's a definition here of satire, right? It has four characteristics, mm -hmm. aggression, play, laughter, and judgment. So satire embodies that the spirit of attack. So play refers to humor operates like a riddle that must be solved, usually using allusions to silly or strange uh, constructs. And then laughter captures the mirth that is anticipated by and derived from a satirical message. And then judgment is the notion that satire presents a, an evaluative argument aimed at a target, such as an institution, a policy, a practice, or society as a whole. And so I tend to treat everything as a great big joke. And that is not usually a good way of interacting with people. Like it, it's been really hard for me to curb that. So people get exhausted, right? People that I'm around on, on a daily basis, they get exhausted because they feel me uh, pushing for laughter. And so when someone's expecting you to laugh, someone's trying to manipulate you into laughter and you're not feeling like playing, and you're not feeling like laughter, it's tiring. And I often tire people out because I'm constantly trying to manipulate them into laughter. And so I was, I was thinking about uh, you know, this, this humor addiction that I have, this satirical, ironic uh, sarcasm addiction that I have, which in large part is based on keeping people at bay. And another part is about trying to manipulate more attention for me and it, it wears people down, some people more than others. So some people miss it when, when I stop engaging in it and they get, you know, I, I miss when you're just always being sarcastic, but uh, one always has to read one's audience. And so humor is entirely audience dependent. So if, if I were to make a joke about the intricacies of Orthodox Judaism, right, that likely would not be something that would abuse you because you're probably not particularly up to date on the intricacies of Orthodox Judaism. So uh, humor, like almost everything else, is entirely situation dependent. Uh, anything that I touched on there that you want to comment on? Um, I'm sorry, just give me a second. I'm just having, yep. I just Go need ahead. to sort of get myself yep. sorted a bit because yep. I just yep. turned on my laptop. Yep, yep, yep. Get um, yourself I'm sorted using and then this stream on my yeah. phone. Uh, yeah. just, just give me, yep. you know, yeah, take one, as much time as you want. Yeah, yeah, take as much time as you want. And okay, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. Nope, so no when problem. I was doing this research, I looked into the stories that these women would share about their radicalization journeys. 
And I do believe that for many of them, if not most of them, it was very genuine convictions that they had in terms of the ideological beliefs of the far right. But I also started to see them gain a lot more celebrity and attention, particularly within a movement which continuously is dominated by men, but often needs women to sort of showcase um, that this is a, a more legitimate space, or at least provide that perception of a more legitimate space. Um, and so, at least with the influencers I studied, I think they are opportunists, and then they very much do see that there is a platform for them in this space. Um, and, and they often. So it's funny to use the put down of opportunist because to successfully navigate life, you have to be opportunistic. So I guess it's the degree of opportunism that you engage in that uh, will make you labeled an opportunist or or not. So, uh, for example, when it comes to gossip, you don't want to, generally speaking, it's not in your best interest to develop the reputation as a gossip. And yet, to navigate life, you have to engage in gossip. You have to know what's going on. But you don't want to be known as the primary source of gossip at work. And you don't want to, generally speaking, it's not in your best interest in, in the workplace to be known as a party to or good friends with or someone who hangs out with someone who is the primary source of gossip at work because that will contaminate your reputation. And the best way to stay employed is to be entirely aligned with your or to be outwardly aligned with your employer's vision. And few employers are going to you know, glory and advance and, and celebrate uh, gossips. And so, too, with opportunism. It's just such a, a funny funny label to put on someone when, as you're navigating through life, obviously you want to be highly opportunistic. But if you're constantly uh, sacrificing what you, you stand up for, I guess, in terms of your own best interest, then you develop the label opportunistic. So I guess it's the amount, intensity that you engage in opportunism uh, that will determine whether or not you, you get that label. So thinking about Daniel Patrick Moynihan and people with a political temperament, all right, they will completely change their politics depending upon their situation, right? Not just the, the broader situation for their constituents, but depending on where they are in power in, in relation to an issue like uh, proliferation of drugs. And so if you just constantly hops, you know, hops skipping between uh, various positions, uh, you, you, in political terms, become noticed, uh, noted as an opportunist. Okay, uh, Curious, you're back. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. Um, so as you were saying, you, you, what were you talking about? You talking about like the four sort of um, types of satire. No, the um, four components of satire. So let me... Oh, the four components of satire, yeah, let right. Let me just uh, review them. There's aggression. So there's usually uh-huh. a, a victim. There's play, so it's it's humor that operates like a riddle that must be solved. Then there's laughter, which is the pleasure anticipated by and derived from the satire. And then there's a judgment, because satire usually has a target, such as an institution or a policy or a practice or society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Any, so, any thoughts on satire? So would you, would you say that you know satire is most often just a defense mechanism that helps you evade truth? No, it or can. the truth of that situation. Uh, and there was a, what, what about you in particular? Because I'm, I'm really interested in you as a sort of character. Um, 
so would you say that you use satire when you sort of want to evade a situation or is it just something that is kind of knee-jerk it, it's it knee-jerk it's knee-jerk but also let, let's just take our interactions right i never mm. want to have an interaction with you particularly that's written down that i would feel embarrassed about if it was you know shared <laughs> all right, Be, right. Uh, so, so so that has some strong incentives to keep a very tight handle on how much I share with you because I, I've never met you in person and I know that I can be very intoxicated by the attentions of uh, pretty intelligent young women such as yourself. I'm very liable to make a fool of myself. I don't want to make a fool of myself. And so I limit how intimate I become in my conversations with you to minimize the chances that you or someone who gets access to your account chooses to publicly humiliate me. So you, do you think that I try to publicly humiliate you? No, 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 no. But you just never know what happens. Human people, mm -hmm. people are unpredictable, right? Mm -hmm. We can never fully know either ourselves or anyone else. And so nobody gets married anticipating divorce. And yet approximately half of marriages end in divorce and they often end in a you know, really nasty, brutal, bitter way. And so I think anyone interacting with someone online uh, should, generally speaking, not share anything written down that can be used to humiliate them, right? You're giving someone a sword when you do that. And generally speaking, that's not in your best interest. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I, I know um, I sent you a tweet about... Um, how you should explore the topic of the use and abuses of satire but the reason i wanted to jump on this stream today is i was actually fascinated by you as a character because it's like you just you just stream every day and how do you do it how do you come up with these topics i mean is it is it all ad hoc like do you just think of it on the spot or is there a lot of preparation that goes into this so it takes a lot of energy to do this. And also it takes a lot of desire to do this because the incentives, generally speaking, for somebody to live stream, for a sensible person to live stream, are usually strongly aligned against live streaming because there are just so many opportunities that you can permanently or significantly damage your life. Uh, those, mm -hmm. those chances are far greater than you doing something positive for your life. So I usually have to be seized. I have to be almost taken over. I, I guess you can conceive of this in, in spiritual terms, emotional terms, ideological and cognitive and intellectual terms. I have to be seized by a topic that compels me to supersede my best interests and to uh, supersede you know, my natural laziness. Right? My natural predisposition is to conserve energy. And to do a live stream, right. even a crappy live stream, takes a tremendous amount of energy. So I have to be taken over by, by questions, by a sense that I have something important to say, or a sense sometimes it's my day has been humiliating and I want to do something that I'm going to feel competent at. So usually most of my, most of my days are not spent doing what I want to do. 
I have to conform my will to other people's will. But then sometimes in doing that, there's humiliation and loss. And I want to regain a sense of agency, a sense of mastery or a sense of competence. So for me, like the, the greatest put down that someone can give me is to say that I'm not competent. So an attack on my okay. competency well, is the, the most painful attack, um, just like telling a woman that she's not attractive will usually be, be can I Can I tell you something? Can yes. I tell you something? Can I tell you something, Luke? You're not yes. competent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you wound me. And, and, and regarding your use of humor, I, I think you're very, um, you're very appropriate with humor. Um, you know when to use it and when not to use it. So I think you do yourself a disservice by um, sort of mischaracterizing yourself a little bit there, that you use humor um, all the time or, you know, you're using humor as a defense mechanism or blah, 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 blah. But I, I think you use it at the right time. Well, I, I've gotten better uh, because I've been humiliated. Right, uh, you know, my natural tendency is to do what I want to do. But if I experience enough humiliation doing what I want to do, then I stop it eventually. Right after enough pain. Right, if the pain of doing what I want to do outweighs the pain of doing what I don't want to do, then I'm going to do what I don't want to do. So I've suffered enough humiliation from following my natural tendencies that uh, I've you know, develop some more adaptive habits. And then there's a second factor that comes into play. I think generally speaking, if you're going to talk about yourself publicly, you should overwhelmingly focus on your failures and humiliations. You should not focus on the things that you're doing well. So I'm usually not going to speak publicly about the things that I do well. But why? I, I find it usually, I don't know, it just it seems to work better that way because if I was to stand up here and talk about things that I do well, it would incentivize, it seems to incentivize life to then humiliate me. It well, seems you, to need be... to come, you, you need to come to a compromised state where you learn how to humble brag. So you can talk about all of your successes and things that you're good at, but people don't even realize you're doing it. No, 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 that's manipulation. That's not a good way to go through life. So there is one good reason to talk about your successes when you think that it can be genuinely helpful. So if I have a genuine desire to be of assistance to others, then that's an appropriate time for me to talk think, about successes. Wait, wait, don't, you think, don't you think talking about your failures all the time is also a form of manipulation because you, you are guarding yourself from people getting jealous or people sort of um, trying to take you down because they think you're being, you know, you're showing off far too much. Yes, it is. It is. It's also a form of manipulation, but it seems to be a form of manipulation with less of a downside. Okay. But if we could just go back to the previous topic, which was um, how do you prep for these streams? So if we use this stream in particular as an example, I mean, you've given it the title, The Women of the Far Right. So do you think of these titles the day before? Do they come to you in the moment? And then you're like, yeah, now I need to stream. Like, what is the, if you can kind of hyper-focus on this stream 
to talk about how you stream generally and how you prep for them, then I would appreciate it. Uh, yeah, that. so I was sick last week, and while I was sick, I and just before I was sick, I read a couple of books. So one was a book called The Women of the Far Right, which reminded me of those Playboy editions like the women of Starbucks or the women of a particular athletic conference in the United States or the women of the post office. And then they'd have, you know, various women from these various occupations, you know, disrobing in Playboys. So I thought I'd take the first half of this academic book, The Women of the Far Right, then add a leering subtitle. Uh, just that just gave me some energy, right? It takes a lot of energy to do a stream. So I sometimes adopt personas or titles or topics or questions for streams that are going to give me energy. So I wanted to explore this book that I, I just read, the, the Women of the Far Right, and explore the topic of opportunism, right? So this academic who's a left-wing sociologist is looking at women of the far right and appropriately labeling them opportunists and then that made me think, you know, an adaptive approach to life is to be opportunist, but you don't want to get the reputation of being an opportunist. So, like, we all want to exceed, excel our friends, but if anyone detects that you want to excel your friends, you're going to have fewer friends. So I, I find it fascinating when we're strongly incentivized to behave in a way that if we were accurately labeled for engaging in something, it would be very much against our best interests. So we're incentivized to act in a way that we don't want to be accurately labeled for doing. Like, what, what, what's the difference between an opportunist and simply the wise and graceful person who opportunistically moves through life but does not get labeled an opportunist? Mm -hmm. But then how do you sort of segue into, you know, other topics on your stream? So, like, the title is the women of the far right and you're exploring the topic of opportunism through that but then you also like you, you've been talking about biden administration uh discussing slowing some weaponry deliveries to israel you're talking about black pastors pressuring biden to call for a ceasefire in uh, gaza so how do those link to the topic or would you call them yeah so i i read topics? newspapers for one to two hours a day and when there's an article that interests me. And so two of those articles, one from NBC News, which I haven't discussed yet, uh, the Biden administration is thinking of uh, slowing their delivery of weapons to Israel to protest Bibi Netanyahu's policy. So I just put that in in show notes, right? I, I keep a file where anytime I read an interesting article, I put it in there. And then if I start going on a topic or something suddenly comes up, such as this attack in Jordan, I know that I've got several articles on a related theme that I can pivot to. So I was intending to make the main focus of this stream, the women of the far right. But in my notes, I had about three separate articles that are related to this conflict in, in the Middle East. So that if for some reason I get pivoted in any particular direction, I've got all these articles lined up that I can then uh, go on. So the, the show will change. Like someone in the chat will say something, a guest will say something, and suddenly I'm pivoted in a new direction that I did not intend to make the primary focus of the of the stream. And, and when, once I pivot, like I've got that? a bunch of prep. I've done a bunch of prep and articles that I can then move to for a while. Right. So do you like that spontaneity or do you sometimes feel very dissatisfied with all of these pivots? And after you've done like a three, four hour stream, you, you think, oh, I didn't really explore the 
the title. The first topic, but you know, the title of the topic, yeah. Uh, Mixed feelings, so it's not overwhelmingly one reaction or the other. So, So which stream has made you feel the most dissatisfied? Do you, I mean, uh, yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah, I can tell you the exact type of stream where I have a topic and I have questions. And I get up here, and suddenly I find I have nothing, nothing to add. Uh, the streams where I'm more of a taker than a giver, where I'm just playing other people's opinions, reading other people's analysis, and I suddenly find that I don't have anything to add. So usually streams where I haven't done sufficient preparation, where I haven't formed my own thoughts, and the, the cognitive load of operating a live stream often takes over. So I am much looser and more articulate before I press live stream. But once I start streaming, suddenly the cognitive load of monitoring my sound levels, monitoring the picture, monitoring that this is transmitting to uh, six different outlets uh, or challenges in the chat or just I have that increased technical cognitive load, which reduces the operating capacity of my brain to actually say something or to contribute to a stream. So when I don't feel like I've contributed anything of significance and I've simply parroted or played other people's analysis, that makes me frustrated. Right. So do you think that there is more sort of cognitive load now that um, I've entered the stream as well? Because this is now a pivot from your initial topic. No, because it's so much easier to talk to someone else. So I used to typically have five to ten people as guests when I live streamed. And that mm-hmm. was in the, the, the glory days of uh, 2017, 2018. And then... Uh, social media companies such as YouTube became much more restrictive on the things that you could talk about. So I once had a very naughty niche where I talk about what was going on with the the alt-right and there was an enormous audience for that topic. And I had, you know, an enormous number of contributors and, and we had, you know, wonderful panel shows. Then, then two things happened. One was that uh, YouTube in particular and social media companies in general became much more restrictive about the topics you could talk about two people talking about these things went out and committed mass murder which then made it much more difficult to talk about these topics and then three i i hooked up with a very articulate intelligent co-host kevin michael grace but he was not necessarily well suited to the panel show and so i i so wanted Kevin on the show, it came, though, at the cost of the panel discussions that we used to have. And then with, with Kevin, uh, I, I wasn't able to regain the, the panel element of the show. So it is far easier for me. It is 10 times easier for me to live stream with you than it is for me to live stream on my own. Okay, well... I'm glad that I could ease the burden a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> it's but really I, I tough still, to I, I talk still, on your I, own. I still, well, I, I still sort of feel bad that I may be distracting you from the original topic. So we, we could go back That's, to the original no, topic. No, no, don't feel bad. Women on the far right. Well, 
okay well because because claire call uh who tweets at book underscore of underscore rules um claire call um the founder of a ideology called secular quranism she's uh, asked me to ask you, um, can you please name the women of the far right? Well, none of them are important, particularly important in and of themselves. So that's probably the most important thing to say is that none of them are particularly important. No, the most important thing to do is to name some names. No, the most important that's thing to do that's... is to provide some context. And the context is none of them imp are important. Like if if Claire Core stopped publicly commenting on social media, like our discourse would not be diminished. Right. And, what do you think and, of Claire Core? Uh, an eccentric personality. Um, I, I, th the most important thing is that I don't think about her uh, very much. I'm happy to intermittently have her on my show, but she's, she's not somebody I think about and her ideology is not one that I find thought provoking. Do you find it quite difficult to talk to her or easy to talk to her? Do you think that she distracts from the topic or do you think, you know, I, I don't how, how think do you she... find conversing with her? Uh, <clears throat> if, if it's like twice a year, it's, it's fine. If it's considerably more than that, I just don't feel like she adds much. Okay, well, I have a few theories about Claire Call, but I don't know if I can use uh, Go ahead. this as an opportunity to talk no, about them. feel free, yeah. Okay, um, well, I kind of feel that um, she she is sort of, in, her, she has a brain that's steeped in satire, you know? She cannot think um, of anything in truthful terms anymore. Um, everything and she, she and even her satire now she she thinks that is the truth she thinks this sort of worldview uh, called secular quranism is the truth but i think she's moved into that because of her dissatisfaction with politics yes so, uh, yes exactly i i think you're you're correct yeah, that yeah. real real life has proved dissatisfying so she is retreated to a fantasy world exactly but she's not i mean i have sort of psychologized her i've offered my psychologization to her in in sort of twitter spaces and live streams but she's just been very um resistant to accepting what i'm saying because she'll just revert back to talking about secular quranism right she's um, a one-trick pony and mm -hmm. if she she seems to have a fairly impoverished real life she doesn't seem to have you know that that many significant interactions with people in real life and two she doesn't read books or serious essays it seems like so she both has an impoverished cognitive life and an impoverished real life which leaves her as a one-trick pony i mean I, I disagree with you about her having a sort of impoverished um personal life because she has been married twice and uh she she has children and she's she's done what women need to do in life <laughs> and now she's just kind of online um talking about things and i mean she was involved uh with the british national party um 
for I think a decade or something of her life and I think that made her very um, jaded about politics you can't really get anything done it's just all talk you can't really uh, organize and implement things that you really want implementing and as a result she's just gone straight into as you said fantasy world um, yeah, but, but I think I think that's fine living there. I think that's much more the symptom than the cause, right? Healthy, right. well-adjusted people don't get into the which party was it? Uh, the BNP, the British yeah, National Party, right. which was healthy, well-adjusted people don't join the British National Party. Type of people who join the British Nationalist uh, Party are marginalised losers. So. Uh, far right movements or far left movements attract socially marginalized losers. And then obviously socially marginalized people are not well equipped to get along well with others. So marginalized disturbed people join these extremist movements with other marginalized disturbed people. And then shockingly, they have unsatisfying interactions within those movements because these are fundamentally people who don't play nicely with others. So you think you think that Claire is sort of mentally unwell? Correct. Because if she's had two husbands and she's she's had kids, I think she's she's all right. Well, she's not she's not ten out of ten in, in mental illness, but obviously someone who's like socially thriving or personally thriving, or anyone who's got anything going on in their life is not going to join the British National Party. Because associating with that party will destroy any uh, bonds you have to normal society. But she, because she didn't have many bonds to normal society, she was willing to risk what she had for the excitement that came with joining this uh, dangerous party. Well, Claire thinks very sort of highly of herself. Um, she's asked the question, hasn't Trump become marginalized? So she, she sort of thinks she's on Trump's level here. Yeah, she's completely protected against real-world feedback because she she lives in, in a fantasy world that, that cannot be penetrated. And and But this is a symptom. Why does someone retreat to such a fantasy world? Because they're failing because they're in real old. life. Well, not just no, getting I old. Plenty just, of people old. who are getting old have very satisfying relationships. Do you think Claire Core has great relations with her children and great relations with her relatives and great relations with her neighbors? and great relations, you know, with uh, social clubs. And no, if she had any of that, she wouldn't be primarily living in a fantasy world. People switch to living in a fantasy world because they're failing in the real world. Okay, but I think it's just a function of her uh, getting older and older. Like she's, I just, you know, when I think about her, I, I don't I don't think about her as uh, some psychotic witch online, which is probably what other people think of her as. I, I just think, oh, like, she's a cute little grandmother. Like, I just think she's so adorable. Right, and you'll think that until she, you know, wounds you. And, and you, you will... Has you, she wounded you? Yeah, she's, she's disturbed me. She, she's, she, once you form any sort of uh, connection with you, she will inevitably become quite disturbing. So right now... She is a, an object of, of, of fun and enjoyment for you, but that's going to change any day now, and you will 
you will regret that you ever had any interaction with her. Oh, well, well, it's it's already changed because I no longer stream with her. I haven't, I mean, it's been two, three months since I've um, streamed with her. I mean, I was in her space yesterday, but I was just sort of trolling her for about five seconds and then I left the space. Um, but yeah, we, we don't we don't space or stream on a regular basis anymore um, because I've I've just run out of things to talk to her about. And also the way in which she approaches any topic. Um, it is exactly the same each time, and it all circles back to secular Quranism. So um, I, I've just embraced, um, I mean, she's going to get really happy when I'm saying this, but I've embraced defeat with Claire Corp. Because I know that there's no point in um, discussing anything with her. Right. There's no, I mean, I, I find it fine a couple of times a year, but I have no desire to do it more than that there's just no no payoff there so are you feeling a payoff uh speaking to me right now or is a payoff yeah. determined sort of i afterwards? really enjoy speaking to you i've wanted i've waited years for this moment really yes you know i've wanted you on my stream <laughs> for years right oh yeah mm -hmm. i've wanted and i've, you I've on been my i've been I've been listening to you since you were streaming with uh, Verity in 2015. Yeah, you were there for my first live stream. And then mm -hmm. we, I think, started interacting in, in 2020. So I have waited mm -hmm. for this moment for probably three and a half years. Wow. I, I wish I was more prepared for this stream, actually. Like every single time I used to think, hmm, I want to go and uh, loop forward Luke Ford stream and I used to think oh, okay, I'm going to prepare, I'm going to read the articles and then we're going to have this grand stream about like loads of different topics and you know discuss each and every news article under the sun but I've just jumped on without any it's very sort of um, ad hoc Yeah I, I mean I could it. not I have not even been up to have a a private you know, phone or uh, Zoom or, or Skype or uh, I've never had a private conversation with you. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've, I've wanted to do this with you for three and a half years, woman. Okay. Well, I, I really, um, well, I take that as a compliment. I appreciate that. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, by the way. I, I, I genuinely think that if, if there is, um, you know, you are the best live streamer on the internet today. Wow, that's what I would say. And I, I'm not even saying this because you know you we're I'm speaking to you right now, and you I think you're deserving of, of a compliment or something. It's it's not just for the sake of giving you a compliment. I genuinely think um, you are the best live streamer today. Let me ask you a tough question. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you experience that? Why why do you think you think that? What is it about you that resonates with? what i do well because you are a free speech maximalist so even though you are constantly in search of certain principles to stop you from thinking so much and i understand that you 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 follow um judaism and you've got some you know you've got principles from that religion as well to kind of guide you and structure your thoughts but you still are very um, inquisitive, curious about 
lots of different topics and so yeah whilst you still have principles you are willing to go beyond those principles and still um exercise free thought i don't know if i explained that well enough um Uh, but sorry hmm. go ahead uh what about the, the 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 dangerous out beyond the cognitive the overton window out where the buses don't run no more element of my live stream do you find that that danger scary enticing no um i mean you you offer a meta analysis which is why i like you so any most people who are obsessed with these overton windows they're just kind of um they're just opining things online like they're giving their opinion of what they think the world should look like or whatever you know xyz event they're discussing whereas you you don't actually give your full opinion or you don't form an opinion until you've seen the other side as well and and you're constantly engaged in this sort of back and forth in your own mind as well so it's not just oh i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna come on this stream today and we're gonna talk about trump and we're gonna talk about how you know trump was being this marginalized guy no i'm I'm gonna look at the other side as well and i'm gonna do a meta analysis and then i'm gonna come to a judgment or maybe i won't come to a judgment because uh it may be impossible to come to a judgment in a certain situation so i have a lot of live streams that i consider failures you know they, they just don't work so forget my feelings what what I think you just shared what brings you into one of my live streams. So to the extent that you'll pay attention or you'll feel compelled by a live stream, I I appreciate the the compliments that you just gave. Talk to me about what takes you out of a live stream, because I know that many of my shows are failures. So just to the extent that you feel comfortable, let me know what, what bores you or you find distasteful or you just, you realize that you're just checking out of this live stream. No, I, I always check out of live streams. I've, I I never watch a live stream from start to finish. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Andrew Tate. I really enjoy his content. But even with his sort of live streams, which he calls emergency meetings, I'm not listening, you know, from start to finish. Um, but like, if if I were to sort of come up with a reading list for myself, like a to-do list of live streams, instead of like picking out different, live streams from different people and like if someone said you know you need to come up with a list of a hundred live streams that you want to listen to um over this month or over the course of maybe even a year or something okay so you you commit to that so i would not um pick out different live streams from different people i i just want to do a deep dive into all of your live streams or all of andrew tate's live streams because i get more from that than just you know different people approaching the same topic or something i i i much prefer i i get hyper focused on one person because i think a single individual has a lot to offer 
And let, uh, let's just take uh, Andrew Tate. So what do, do his live streams do for you? Like what engages you? What brings you in? What keeps you listening to an Andrew Tate live stream? Well, he's a very deep thinker and people don't realize that about him. Um, again, I'm always inclined towards people who can think quite meta. So look, mm -hmm. even though you, uh, you, Luke Ford, have a religion, and even though Andrew Tate now he's converted to Islam, so he is a religion, or, and even previously had a sort of worldview of his own, but he can still, and you can still come out of that and approach things in a kind of meta way. So my, again, we're talking about meta-analysis, my inclination is always towards meta-analysis because I find it really difficult to kind of... Um, understand any situation without looking at the underlying principles that determine it in the first place what would you like just autistically mm -hmm. sorry go ahead uh, i was just going to be self-centered and ask what do you think i could do with this show or what could i do more of or what where where could i go that uh, might be compelling Oh, no, first of all, you need to get rid of that Rob dude. Um, the Sorry, not Rob. What's his name? The rabbi that you have. Uh, Reb Duvid. A Reb Duvid, yeah. He is so boring. Oh, my God. I don't know what... I mean, I understand, I mean, I, I completely get that you people want to talk to different people and, you know, interactions with people who disagree with you or think differently to you can make it make for a very interesting conversation but i just don't yeah you tune out that... when duvid yeah it's not a pleasurable cognitively enhancing yeah. experience yeah i mean i'm still me personally i'm still fascinated by what you get out of talking to duvid so i i would if i was if i you know actually committed to this task of listening to all of your live streams from start to finish um i would not be skipping through duvid's bits because i i, I want to see how you interact with him and and what you get from that so however the the average listener um i don't think they're, they're gonna be like oh yeah like let me listen to luke ford because duvid's on like that just is not gonna happen what is it about tend to du go on a lot yeah what is it about duvid yeah. that you find boring or the opposite of compelling can you break it down and be as specific as possible i think well, it's very ironic because you are the more sort of um, liberal Jew compared to Duvid, mm -hmm. if I'm right. Yes. And yet he is the more elastic thinker. He doesn't, he just gets lost in um, in what the principle is, right? So he, like, whereas you, you have your principles and then, uh, yeah, sometimes you can discard your principle for a second and analyze the, a topic outside of that principle. But generally speaking, you know, you know when to stop and say, well, you, you, you know how to sort of guide the conversation, right? You, um, so I'll stop him whereas, repeating himself, like his natural tendency exactly. is to repeat a point again and again and again. And once he repeats exactly. himself two or three times, usually I'll intervene. Well, that, I think that repetition is a function of him just not having any true belief in his head. That's what I feel. I know that's, I and growing, growing towards really the sunlight of attention, because I notice this with many live streamers, they say things that will get attention or applause. Mm. 
Right. Yeah. So again, that's quite ironic because you were the liberal Jew in comparison to him. But he is the one that is more, he's, he's, he's more susceptible to worldly desires. Yeah, it's very hard to do a regular live stream and not become captured by your audience. Do you, do you discern me or have you discerned me experiencing audience capture? No, because I think the whole point with you live streaming is to um, escape audience capture. You're, you're constantly uh, uh, avoiding and escaping the, the mob. Yeah. Which is why you you turn to Judaism. It's like people say Judaism is a very tribal religion, but in your context, you've escaped your own tribe. You've escaped tribalism to to, uh, uh, to and and Judaism frees you from that tribe. Judaism frees frees you from your own tribalism. I feel. I can do some good live streams on my own, but you know I'm only. 20% of what I could be when I'm live streaming without you. Really? Yeah. I thought it was, I, I'm kind of, um, I think you're more animated without me. Yeah, maybe because I'm, I'm perhaps I'm so, somewhat controlled right now because I don't want to make a total ass of myself. Also, um, I, I know you, you've wanted to live stream with me for for a while, but we we did um, we did do a Twitter space. I know, um, and, and I had space. a fantasy that that would become a regular thing. Really? Yes. I mean, I have I have been wanting to start streaming. You know, I've been uh, and actually we've got Dixon in the uh, in the stream right now as well. I don't know if you can see. Yeah, he's um, welcome to contribute if. He wants. So he's a he's a sort of online friend, and um, uh, I, I I've I've asked Dixon a couple of times as well that you know can we can we just live stream together, um, because he also is a very kind of holistic and meta thinker, and um, I'm sorry, I'm I'm going to carry on repeating this buzzword meta because I I am really inclined towards meta analysis which is why I come to your streams, which is why I'm a big fan of your streams, which is why I'm a fan of Andrew Tate, which is why I get along with Dixon, and which is why I had to stop streaming with Claire, because she just can't get out of a sort of autistic fixation. Can Can you describe what uh, a good live stream does for you emotionally? You, you've You've given voice to what it does for you cognitively, can mm -hmm. you give voice to what it does for you emotionally? It must I don't fulfill know. something. It must provide some sort of pleasure for you. Well, is that working on the assumption that I'm watching a live stream from start to finish? Because no, 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 no. Even if you I, just I watch or listen yeah. for two yeah. minutes, it's doing something mm -hmm. for you. It's giving, like when, when I read a book, you know, it's providing me cognitive sustenance, but it's also giving me something emotionally. So... I think I can articulate what a good book does for me emotionally, but what does a good live stream do for you emotionally? Because you, you laid out what it does for you cognitively, but what does it do for you emotionally? It, um, it, it provides my mind with clarity. 
that even uh, there are a lot of times where I'll uh, I'll you know uh, start listening to your live stream, um, but then I'll stop on my own, and so that stop will be very um, intentional. Like I've reached clarity now, and that's why I've stopped. Uh, so you're here's using language from somebody else, but it, it feels like you are looking for someone to lay a tapestry of meaning over the world. Mm -hmm. But I'm also just looking for somebody who's honest and can conduct objective analysis because I think that's really lacking in the world. Um, I mean, we could, we could um, work through a sort of comparative framework to approach this uh, question of yours. I mean, can you give me the name of that um, that politics live streamer from Europe? Uh, you sometimes listen to him and you sometimes sort of incorporate him, him into your live streams. Uh, can you give me more detail? I'm not sure which which person. Oh, oh Colin Liddell? Uh, uh, Colin, Colin Liddell from Japan? No, he's, I mean, what, is it by Japan you mean someone who's Japanese? No, no, Colin Liddell is a Scotsman who lives in Japan. But who's the person you're referring to? No, he's not, he's not to? Scottish. He's, okay. he's European. He's a live, he's a politics live streamer. And he's, you know, sort of talking about, you know, the refugee crisis, immigration, and EU and things like that. And, and he also discusses American politics a lot, actually. Trump. Uh, how often do I play him? You do play him quite a bit. Um, well, when, when the name comes to you or some more identifying details. No, I, I, I've, I've never known his name. It's funny. You don't like talking about what live streams do for you emotionally. No, I was, I was going to talk about it via him. Right, okay, but well, you want to come back to I the don't. cognitive. You don't want to go to the emotional. Yeah, I don't know if I get any emotions from it. It's it's uh, the cognitive is very important for my emotions, I guess. Or you feel more comfortable and less exposed talking about the cognitive rather than the emotional, which is just too vulnerable. No, I, I've spoken about the emotional quite a bit, like uh, discussed um, things with Claire publicly in live streams and. In, in relation to my private life so but even i mean i don't know i still need to know what the name of that guy is <laughs> that's really bugging me i'm still He's curious what, i'm still curious what like a good live stream does for you emotionally because it has to be doing something significant for you emotionally because you okay, well, I, you I, resonate I can tell you what mm -hmm, i can Okay, I can tell you what a bad live stream does for me emotionally. <laughs> yeah, like this guy, this guy who vulnerable. talks about European, mm -hmm, that guy who talks about European politics, the, the European dude. Uh, I mean, I don't know, somebody, maybe somebody in the comments is uh, somebody saying Sam Vaknin. No, not Sam Vaknin. Uh, Decoding the gurus. Oh, Chris right Kavanaugh, now? Chris Kavanaugh, the Irishman who's a cognitive anthropologist who. No, 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 oh, okay. no. Because I would have, I would have referred to him as an academic, and I know that he's a sort of Oxford professor or whatever. So Chris Cavanaugh, it—he's got a European accent. 
like, okay. I'm talking. I'm talking about uh, these things like uh, Trump, and you know, he sort of talks like this, and he's got a flag behind him, and he's in a very you know tiny room. Yeah, with his uh, mic and and you know all of those things out. Uh, who who's other live streams? That Benjamin, that tall guy, who plays the piano. Who's a comic? Uh, Benjamin, what's what's his full name? Owen Benjamin. Owen oh, Benjamin. I, uh, Owen Benjamin's. I yeah. So I've listened to about ten live streams. I mean, he's got a, a two thousand live stream, nearly two thousand. So and he, and he's kind of numbered all of them. Um. So I haven't listened to all of Owen Benjamin's. I don't know, fifteen hundred live streams or something. But I really like the way he thinks. Again, a very kind of meta thinker. I mean, I need to do a meta-analysis of Tate, Luke Ford, and Owen Benjamin. Yes. <laughs> and and Dixon, perhaps. Because <laughs> um, that would be the ultimate meta thing to do, right? Meta-analyze and meta-analyst. Yeah, that'd be, that, that'd be excellent. And you also ought to analyze what emotions a good live stream brings up for you. Okay, so let me just tell you the emotions that I get from the bad live streams. This guy, the European dude who talks about politics, um, I can't remember his name, but he really annoys me because all he's doing is presenting information, right? So he's not he's not analyzing the information. He's just saying. So, for example, you've you've um, uh, you've been through a New York Times article about black pastors pressure, pressuring Biden to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. So he won't really analyze that. He'll just present the information and that's happened. And then, OK, fine, he might have an opinion that, oh, this shouldn't happen or this should happen. But that's about it. And then that frustrates me. And what that does for my emotions is I feel I feel unhappy. I feel dissatisfied and I, I don't agree that uh cognition and emotions are you know separate entities they are interconnected right but it it's uh it seems to be more congenial for you to talk about the cognitive element of emotion rather than the emotional element of cognition yeah and i think you've just morphed and declare now because you've got a fixation on this topic <laughs> Well, okay, fine. You can. You that's the greatest put down. That's the that's the that's the sharpest cut. <laughs> no, you can you can you can laugh at Claire for a bit if you want. <laughs> God, you really no, know how to hurt a guy. This is why I'm so afraid to be vulnerable with you. No, 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 no. Let me tell you, Luke. You're very confident. <laughs> um. Okay, but you can you can offer your like psychologization if you wish to. Um, uh, you can, I mean, you're saying that um, I'm what you're saying that I'm trying to escape emotions by talking about cognitive things. Is that what? Well, I, I I'm I was just curious. I mean, I've tried fifteen different times, so it's, it's pointless to keep uh, banging on about what uh, live streams do for you emotionally. But I'll just talk about what doing a live stream does for me emotionally, and it frequently restores my sense of self. 
So real life has sometimes been humiliating. Real life has sometimes been embarrassing. Real life has sometimes been tiresome. Real life has drained the energy out of me. Real life has lacked excitement. And by doing a live stream, I get to regain all those things. I get a sense of agency, a sense of mastery, a sense of excitement. I get a sense that I'm running the show, that I'm in charge, that I am taking action, that I'm being decisive. I'm not uh, just following directions uh, from, from other people. And I feel like I'm good at something. So the, the most painful thing for me is to feel like I'm incompetent. And some days I feel incompetent. And so uh, to restore my sense of masculinity and competence, I do something that I think I, I do well. And then I feel like more of a man. Can you, can you do like um, 20 star jumps right now? What is a star jump? I'll look it up. I'll Google it. Star jump. Jumps. Okay. Exercise. It's okay. when you jump with your arms and your um, legs, legs wide open. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So I'm I'm waiting for this to show up because there's a bit right, of lag. Right. I, I'm not going to do it because it'll have it could have negative uh, repercussions for people around me if I'm jumping up and down. But uh, I did three. Okay, I'm I'm just watching the live stream on my laptop. There's a bit of a lag, so you're doing it now for me. <laughs> oh, excellent! That I'm gonna I'm gonna. Um, get a screen recording of that one and put it up on my Twitter feed. What do you I really think... appreciate you doing that. <laughs> what do you think uh, doing live streams does for me emotionally? Because maybe I'm fooling myself. I think, um, I think live streams um, help you continue with no fap. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, so they, they, they help you live this sort of, uh, monastic lifestyle that you're trying to do. Right. So that was a, a key key part of my NoFap journey. It was about 30 days in, I started announcing it. And it's not, don't, I don't encourage people to announce such things. It's not usually a good idea. You need to be highly selective about the people you confide in. But by telling some people that I was NoFap, my ego got involved to continue on the NoFap path. Uh, because once I kind of enlisted other people in my recovery, then, then uh, I didn't want to succumb to a moment of weakness. Okay, but you could, you could still be a hypocrite, right? You could still be pretending to your audience that you've committed to no fap. Yes, but... I could. But if I, if, if I have addictive tendencies, which I think is fairly clear that I do, I can't live a lie without suffering significantly for it. So addicts, once they start lying, it, it becomes part of a, of a downward would trend. For, for addicts like me, to lie is to die. That, that I don't mean lying in the sense of you save someone's feelings. I'm talking about lying where for no good reason you you claim something for yourself that is not true. You're doing it to enhance your, your ego. 
So for, for people like me, to lie is to die. Mm-hmm. It sets me well, in a destructive I mean, downward could, spiral. Right. Well, regarding your no-fap journey, could I just... Could I, could I just offer a more sort of cynical interpretation of this? Please. Um, and, and it's uh, it's Quranic. Um, so uh, chapter 57, uh, verse uh, 27 of the Quran, um, it talks about, um, it says that but monasticism was something they invented. We did not ordain it for them, only to see only to seek God's pleasure. And even so, and e- so this is this is the key here. And even so, they did not observe it properly. So the way I interpret this verse is, um, you know, they still have a sort of cheeky wank here and there. So that's why I don't believe you. Interesting. But uh, for me, it I get the same, a similar emotional boost from being no fap to live streaming in that they both give me a sense of agency. Like when I used to succumb to the, the practice of self-abuse, I, I, I was no longer master of my domain. All right. You know, I start flogging myself like a monkey and I start, you know, creating all sorts of uh, erotic scenarios in my head. And then it sometimes becomes like the most pleasurable and intense experience of my day. And then I go around during the day collecting potential scenarios to work out at night. And so it starts taking over my life, which for someone who's not an addict in this department will seem completely ridiculous. Yeah, but that still doesn't address whether you're, that just addresses the kind of reasons why you're doing it, but it doesn't address whether you're actually doing it properly. Yeah, but if the reasons I am doing it are somewhat in the direction of truth, then if I were living a lie that in this department, it would be highly destructive to me. And whatever someone may see in my live streams, I think it's pretty clear that I am not on a destructive path in life. Mm-hmm. Like I'm someone who, who's master of his domain. Right? I'm someone with a strong sense of agency. My life has been headed in in a good direction for about as long as I've been live streaming. I have humiliations, I have setbacks, but I have very solidly, I'm moving in a good direction. I can stand up here and share things about my life. I can uh, develop ideas. And if if I were engaged in, in such uh, self-promotional lies, that would show. Okay, well, this is a very interesting um it's a very interesting way to approach the question like i've never i've never come across this before so i i mean that's what people should do like when you ask them um do you wank and then they're like oh well no i i I don't and that's because um i i um you can see it because i live stream and i and you can see that i um think about different topics and i do all this thing on you know all these things online and it's a very sort of long-winded answer. Well, it, it, comparing myself to almost all other right-wing live streamers of which I'm aware, it's very clear to me that what almost everyone else who operates in this space is primarily engaged in is self-promotion. Right? It's not primarily about ideas. It's not primarily about values. 
is primarily about self-promotion and they are generally willing to twist themselves and adapt themselves to please their audience, right? There's, there's something very hollow and dishonorable about almost all right-wing live streaming of which I'm aware. And that is and not what, what I intend to do. What pulls you towards honesty? Uh, it, it's what I have to do to stay emotionally sober. So I've never engaged with mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol, but I have certain uh, emotional addictions which will dramatically deteriorate the, the quality of my life and I don't want to relapse into them. And so for me to, to live, I have to tell the truth. As soon as I start getting in self-promotional lies, I spiral downhill. And it, it becomes evident very quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, autistic merit has asked the question, when you ask them if they wank, how often have you found yourself asking anyone a question as that? No, I, 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 yeah, I've asked this question a lot of times, actually, to a lot of people. And how often do you think they tell you the truth? Um, I think a lot of people are quite honest about that stuff. I don't know about the women of the far right, though. I mean, <laughs> we can analyze their, their um, wanking capabilities, I guess. I mean... They they are kind of inclined towards intellectual masturba masturbation, but I don't know what they do. Would you um, agree with my estimation that the women of the far right have uh, no uh, intellectual significance? I mean, who are the women of the far right? There's Lauren Southern. Uh, Lauren Southern at uh, one point, Brittany uh, Venti. Pettibone. Uh, yeah, Brittany Pettibone. I'll I mean, I'll have to. Do you I know mean, what I call Because we possible. can't even think of them. It just shows the, the lack of uh, significance that they have. So, uh, Lana Lochtef of Red Eyes, uh, Rebecca Hargraves, Robin Riley, Ayla Stewart, Lacey Lynn, Lauren Chen. Okay, well, I think the, the bigger um, the cult or the group the more uh, chance there is for a woman to gain some kind of power and influence um maybe i'm wrong with this principle by the way but assuming that's the case then uh with the kind of uh, far right because it's such a small sphere um you're gonna have women just kind of fizzle out because they're gonna have men trying to sort of uh you know they're kind of vying for influence um against men that's what i feel it's not a cooperative sort of model um it's it's a dog eat dog's world <laughs> in the far right uh, are there who would you say the most important uh, thinkers, female thinkers on the far right? Because I mean, it's impossible to even think right of any. Because, no, the problem is because the far right is so disorganized and it's so splintered, you've got loads of different groups 
Um, so it's impossible for me to, for anybody to even talk about the women of the far run because it just doesn't work like that. There is no such thing as far right in a kind of, I mean, it's as, as, as a label to attack people. Yeah. That, that far right is, I guess that's what far right means in that situation. But, um, but as for far right being an actual thing, I don't think it is. Okay. Uh, what do you think of my analysis that most, oh no, all, Almost all right-wing live streamers, of which I'm aware, are primarily engaged in an act of self-promotion. Sorry, if you just repeat that. Just yes. Why do you think of my analysis mm. that uh, all, almost all right-wing live streamers, of which I'm aware, so from mm -hmm. Millennial Woes to Sargon of Akkad to Richard Spencer to, uh, I don't know, they, they, Tucker Carlson... Uh, they all seem to be primarily engaged in an act of self-promotion. Beyond ideas, well, beyond think, ideology, beyond politics, it's primarily about them trying to become uh, as famous, influential, and uh, sleep with as many people, and uh, just in indulge their rawest uh, drives. No, I think it's a case by case thing. I know it's easy to think of that as the kind of unifying ultimate principle, but um, it's a case by case thing because look, if you look at millennial woes, I think also I think that people can start off quite honest and then become dishonest as their audience grows. So uh, things can um, start off quite genuine. Um, with millennial woes i think he's had a kind of up and down journey so he started off honest then kind of became dishonest in the middle and now maybe he's back to being honest by you know instead of making lots of content with sargon and all these people he's now making content with uh richard spencer who's kind of a more of a kind of blacklisted figure uh, on the far right if if you want to call it that um so that's a sort of sign of honesty um if you're willing to <clears throat> talk to people who um have been cancelled by your own tribe so to speak um and then uh, who else did you mention mention you mentioned richard spencer i'd say that richard spencer has also had an up and down trajectory when it comes to honesty and dishonesty um, is there anything that richard believes in greater than richard spencer Yeah, I, I think he, he he believes in humanity. <laughs> I know I, I'm being serious. I get a I get strong I, sort of humanist I, vibes off him. Yeah, I, I know that's why I find it funny because you do believe that he does believe in something greater than himself. Yeah, yeah, because each time he gets narcissistic or each time he's going overboard in his analysis of of Jewish influence or, you know, the problems with immigration, etc. He will then kind of um he'll he'll just feel bad. I see it in his face, I see it in his in his gestures, I, I see it in the way that he speaks about things and he tries to tell each time he will kind of tell his audience 
to to I don't know how to explain this, but he just he ju- he just comes across as a kind of humanist to me. Do you think he's master of his domain? Well, he. What is his domain? Uh, do you think he's in control of himself? Do you think he has a a an adaptive level of self control, or do you think I think he's in a just varying degrees, various varying circles of self destruction? No, I, th- I think well, I think that self destruction has come later on. I think he used to be a master of his domain. But he's um, he just he didn't have a good relationship with his wife or whatever. That's what's happened. That's ah, so you would attribute much of his behavior to his bad relationship with his wife. Well, I would yeah. attribute his trouble with his wife to this is someone who is still in the grip of uh, narcissism to a destructive degree. Adaptive, no, but I adaptive I, narcissism. I, I I don't know if this is narcissism now because it's more like he has a bit of a messiah complex now, uh, which is a form of narcissism. But also, messiah complex can can make you um, tell people to do moral things, right? So he's he's trying to control his audience now from from becoming extremists. That's what I feel. If if he could get say. 10 times the audience, 10 times the power, 10 times the money by saying the opposite of what he's saying right now. Do you think he'd do it? I think he'd do it. I think uh, Richard No, because he's, twist a, he's had a chance to do that. With what's opportunist. Go ahead. No, I, he's, had a, he, he's had a chance to do that. But and he's done he it. He's done it repeatedly. It, how? I mean, I, don't, I haven't followed him that religiously, so you're probably more knowledgeable on this topic. Well, I mean, this was a person for years for whom about his greatest joy was having, you know, hundreds of high school dropouts flip him Heil Hitler salutes. Oh, I wasn't even thinking of that. But he regrets that now, right? So he's apologizing. Yeah, because it's not in his interest anymore. He's discovered that it's more in his interest to be opposed to that. So he's changed. He, He twists with the with the incentives because at, at his at his core he's he's currently empty I, I don't think this is irreversible you know i think he could get his life together and lead an honorable life but uh for now he twists and turns in in the winds of whatever is opportunistic for for him okay i'm i'm not i don't know if i agree, agree with you on that because i think i think he deeply regretted yeah, he regrets yeah, getting caught. Well, let's let's approach this from a different uh, perspective. Uh, are there any right-wing live streamers who you believe have resisted audience capture? Um, Andrew Tate, maybe. If if you want to call him a right-wing streamer and so where does andrew tate go against the wishes of his audience well uh, you know he had loads of sort of white um right wingers who were following him but then he converts to islam which works against 
his audience maybe maybe he has a bigger audience now because of that conversion however um it was a sort of risky thing to do um within the context of his initial audience um he 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 means what he says when it comes to um gender relations and his sort of views on women he's not just taking the piss whereas i don't know a, a lot of right wingers like a bit of just uh cock teasing going on all the time it's like they they know that the people who are um, are sort of influencers in their sphere they know that then they, they don't even mean what they say and they're happy with that they're happy with that dynamic so I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking like where does andrew take sort of um what was the what was the question? How did you phrase the question, the question? Was where does Andrew Tate tell his audience something that they don't want to hear? So, for example, uh, mm -hmm. anytime I say that people should get the COVID vaccine, my audience overwhelmingly reacts against that. When I tell my audience mm -hmm. that, by and large, our ruling elites did a better than average job with regard to COVID, almost nobody in my audience wants to hear that. When I say that sometimes the elites are right and the people are wrong. Almost nobody in my audience wants to hear that. So I'm just continually saying things that my audience doesn't want to hear. And I'm curious what Andrew Tate is frequently saying that his audience does not want to hear. Um, I think also some of his Muslim audience um, don't want to hear things about how um, they, they, they want to hear anything about white identity, right? And uh, Andrew Tate sort of panders to the white identity crowd. He, I mean, he recently tweeted, maybe today or yesterday or the day before, that um, you know it's completely logical for white people to want Britain to be white, uh, you know, remain a white majority. And now that he's got a huge Muslim and kind of POC people of color, whatever following, he um, he's happy to to say things that don't really suit their worldview. Right, and does suit another substantial part of his audience. Uh, you use yeah. the word pander. He panders to one part of his audience, and then mm -hmm. another time he panders to another part of his audience, but the guy is fundamentally a, a soulless panderer. I mean, that's what he is. No, I think he's he's just an honest person, that he doesn't, you, I mean, pandering is just a kind of post hoc analysis there because we we are interpreting it like that. Um, I think in in the moment when he's tweeting and saying things, I don't think he's really pandering to anybody. I think he genuinely believes what he does. Um, he's always been he's always had a deep sort of um, critique of mob morality. That's the sort of he won't explicitly say that, by the way, but I pick up on that. It's an implicit theme throughout his uh, content. Like why, even his criticism of celebrity culture, I mean, it's ironic because he's become a celebrity, but um, before he was big and even now that he's big, he's, he, um, he does kind of target celebrity culture, um, which is, a very common thing to do but um 
nonetheless, it's it's still it's still a it's still a criticism of, of mob morality. That's how I see it. It's so we got uh, Dixon the in the hangout with us. Uh, Dixon, do you want to jump in on any particular topic? Uh, I came into this a little bit late, so I don't know what exactly is being discussed here. You've been on the hangout for an hour, so don't give me. I just came in late. No, you've no, been I hanging left, around the I hangout for an hour. Back. No, no, I left and I came back. So I, yeah. I was. So I was you spent about an hour on the hangout without saying anything. So it's not right. like you just jumped into the stream and haven't heard anything, which is what you presented. Are you, You've been are listening you for an autistic? hour. No, no, are you autistic? I left. So this current strain of what you're talking about, I don't know, is what I'm saying. So what exactly you're saying right now, I'm not familiar with, other than I heard the word mob morality. Good on you. That's good on you, mate, for accurately standing up for yourself. Is there anything that you've heard during the approximate hour that you've been on the Hangout and very no. graciously? No, the answer is no. There's nothing you've heard that interests you. So if you nope. didn't hear anything for an hour that interested you, <laughs> what kind of moron nothing. are you to hang out for an hour listening moron. to something you spend that an doesn't interest hour. you? No, 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 no. Excuse me, this is your stream. So you spend an entire hour being boring and I get critiqued? Hell no, it's your fucking stream, mate. If you can't handle it, your fault, not mine. Fucking stop. How long have you been streaming for? Since I heard the word 2015 mentioned. So what? It's been about almost a decade and you still suck? How old are you? 55, 65? You look about 50. So 50 years old, no personality, boring as shit, continues to stream, yet you get mad at me. Okay. I'm not mad that, at you. Tracks. I'm just curious. Oh, no, no, no. You are arse mad. You are extremely mad. But now you're, what, retreating because I come back with a bit more verve, a bit more energy because I've a bit more testosterone than you? What are you? A pussy? Stand up for yourself now. Quick. It's your stream. Go on. I don't need to take directions uh, from you. You're stuttering. Oh, why? Why are you stuttering, Luke? I didn't stutter. Okay, now you're quieter. Good. A few decibels lower. Now we can have a civilized conversation. Go on. No, I, I appreciate you standing up for yourself. Oh, you appreciate me standing up for myself, really, after being an asshole. Shut up, man. I called you out. You called me out. And uh, here we are. Seriously, though, I can't understand hanging out in hang out for an hour and finding the entire yeah, thing boring. I, like, I would never I do really that. Speak. No, 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 no. I was outside. I couldn't speak. I am now inside and able to speak. Okay, good point. When, when you make a good point, I want to acknowledge you made a good point. You made a bunch of good points. And uh, what, what is it that uh, on, on a larger social, cultural, political, or religious theme that has been occupying your thinking recently um yeah so there's a lot of romanians in my area uh and i thought you know what when i first moved into my area i was kind of fond of them they're a bit friendly they could be nice but the more i live here the more i've made this my permanent home this new area the more i realize i don't actually like them all that much their friendliness is kind of annoying they're, they're quite loud, they're quite brash. I kind of want them all out, but I can't do anything about it because I've got no power. I only have a vote. And I realized how stupid that is in a society when all you have is one vote. When I think to myself, you know what, sometimes my vote should count slightly more than their vote, but I can't do that. I can't, I can't actualize that in any real form unless I procure some sort of power over them or over other people. So maybe what my goal should be in life is to procure power so I can get rid of those fucking Romanians downstairs. At least that's what's been occupying my mind recently. 
<laughs> so, are you a big fan of uh, multiculturalism? Um, depends on the culture and depends on how multi we're speaking and in what environment. Which cultures are you a fan of? Black. I'm a fan of black <laughs> culture. And what is it about black culture that you respect and enjoy? They're loud. They're brash. Uh, they're useless at anything else. Uh, so they're, they're actually largely harmless. At least in my line of work, they're harmless because I don't really see many of them. Um, and I like how loud and brash they are. They kind of balance out the Romanians to me because the Romanians can be loud and they can be, they can be kind of brash, but really they're not, they're just an annoying presence. Whereas the blacks are kind of like, uh, like, do you know when you get stomach acidity and you feel really, you get like a really bad tummy pain and you, you, you take some Gaviscon or I think if you're in America, I think it's called Pepto-Bismol or whatever. Uh, and it kind of neutralizes it. That's what I think of blacks in society. You need at least 15% of blacks in society because it neutralizes the boring kind of uh, the boring whites and the boring South Asians, the boring, whatever. They add a bit of flavor. Uh, you know, but not more than 15%, though. Any more than 15%, the ratio is off. Then they become annoying and malicious of their own right. Uh, but I don't live in a black area. I live in a kind of a predominant white area with a lot of South Asians mixed into it. So that's why I like this ratio a lot. So you like uh, blacks as a spice, not as the, the main course of the neighborhood? Exactly, as a condiment. Condiment. Okay, and any other cultures that you respect and appreciate? Uh, I like the Islamic cultures, so whatever whatever racial groups that form on, except except funnily enough, except black Muslims. Uh, that's that's the, those two things kind of that's too much. You know, when you have a black and you have a Muslim, that's kind of like putting a hat on a hat. It's a bit pointless. <laughs> uh, but 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 I do I do I do I do actually I'm I'm a fan of the uh, the Muslims, and I mean real Muslims, not like the one you've got here. Uh, curious because I'm the ones who actually practice, like Andrew Tate. Uh, I heard his name being mentioned here. <laughs> well, okay, what about Japanese or Chinese culture? Do you respect those? Uh, no, they're just kind of boring, bland. Like they're just kind of there. Uh, they're just kind of taking up room. They're compliant. They're kind of there, but like they're like androids. Uh, like like I have Chinese a, food. I don't like. Who likes Chinese food? Dixon. Oh, yuck. I hate Chinese food. It's gross. Um, it's disgusting. Um, I don't like, I mean, Japanese people are, these all, they're benign groups of people. They're kind of there and they take up space and they pay taxes and whatever. But other than that, not a fan, uh, not a fan of, um, uh, like East. I don't mind Vietnamese people. They're quite nice. I don't mind Southeast Asian people. So people from Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, I know they all have Chinese people in their own right, but their Chinese are a little bit different from mainland China Chinese, um, I think, anyways. And ha have you lived overseas? I've lived in a few countries. I've lived in India. I've lived in the UAE. Uh, I've lived about for a month in Malaysia. Uh, so that's a significant amount of time in one place, I guess, but not years and years. Uh, so, yeah, that's about as much as my experience goes. So how much of your life have you spent living overseas? I'd say about eight years. Okay. And I'm what 25. Some, okay. And what are some of the, the good things and the bad things about living in India? 
Uh, the good things is, well, I am Indian, so it's close to my culture, uh, easy to settle in. Bad things, it's very noisy, it's very messy, uh, it's very polluted, uh, it's very corrupt. Um, but I like I like how hyper-nationalistic everyone is in India. Uh, I, I do like how everyone's just really openly bigoted when they are. Um, you know, it's all out in the open. Uh, I like I like that. But the problem in India is everything is out in the open. So is the filth, so is the pollution, so are the people. Uh, so that's what I don't like about India. Uh, what I liked about the UAE uh, is the number one. What I liked is the Islam. Uh, I liked that the, the first and foremost. Secondly, I liked the fact that, you know, you you can't walk in the UAE. You need to drive. So you'll be boiling if you want to walk from point A to point B. So it forces everyone to drive and not walk. So that means you socialize less with people. Uh, I liked how there's a very clear hierarchy in the UAE of who's on top and who's not on top. And everyone is aware of that hierarchy. I like when I like when things are made very clear to me, like who is where and who isn't where. Um, you know, it, it solves a lot of confusion in society. And what I like about the UK is the people here are nice. I like the weather. I like the cuisine. What I don't like is I don't like Pakistanis. Uh, I don't like Romanians. Uh, what I like, what I don't like the most is people who are Pakistani, but but they're kind of detached from their Pakistani identity and detached from their ethno-religious identity who kind of just spend the whole, whole you know the whole day on, on online just kind of uh you know in some in, in interviewing other people and kind of patronizing them without them realizing that sort of thing not a big fan of that um you know uh, uh i don't know why she's laughing but yeah that's 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 how i break break it down how is uh, indian culture in the uk different from indian culture in india in your first um, experience it's more diluted uh, uh, Indians are a group that assimilate fairly well. I, I mean, at least I think they assimilate fairly well relative to other groups. So it's diluted. They don't follow their religion as much closely. Um, so they're all functional hypocrites. They're all basically just Westerners, but at the same time, they resent elements of the West. So they're the worst kind of Westerners because they will resent the actual home populace in a very sort of petty way, but at the same time, adopt everything about them which is the worst, because you don't even get a degree of separation from them. Uh, so they're a lot like social chameleons. You know, if you're a white person in the UK, you might trust one of them because you think, hey, he acts like me and talks like me and dresses like me and all that kind of, but no, he actually resents you. Whereas what I like about Muslims is they're very openly hostile. You look at, you look at one of them and you go, ooh, this is a bad guy. This is not a guy I want to talk to, but at least you know that in your mind. Whereas with Indians, oh, they're very covert. They are very sneaky they are. Uh, you know, um, much like another group that's given a, a you know given the stereotype of being sneaky and and being kind of a mercantile in their in their way they act. I don't want to name the group because I think I'll get uh, struck off if I do. But <laughs> but I think we all I think I think we, we all know, know who we're talking about. <laughs> but, but, um, uh, Lucas yes. of that group. Yeah, uh, are there any advantages, Dixon, to Indian culture being? Uh, subdued in the UK you pointed out the bad things about it is there anything is there anything good about uh, Indian culture being more subdued in the UK as opposed to India um, subdued you mean yeah at a lower level of intensity at least the ones that they can they choose to follow they can be quite nice. 
uh, if you it can be quite personable if you know them uh, and quite they, they generally I'd say generally they wish well upon others even though there's a petty competitive nature they generally wish well and they're generally harmless so typically speaking if you have enough of them in an area it might be good for the area if there's like I don't know a good relationship between them and the people there but other than that they also self-segregate a lot so it's Oh, it's a give and a take, man. Because but what I will say is the second, third and fourth generations typically tend to just they just tend to just attach itself onto the society, the social strain of whatever, whichever area they live in. So, you know, they just ultimately they just become part of the main group anyway. So you don't have to worry about them causing much trouble uh, in the long run. Um, but other than that, I wouldn't say there's a lot of great things about them that benefits a, Brit- a country like Britain compared to India. How how much anti-Indian prejudice have you encountered in the UK? Next to next to zero, almost zero anti-Indian prejudice in my life, uh, especially as I grew around London, where quite often we were very much in the majority or the plurality which area I lived in. So there was next to no anti-Indian, whatever, uh, except from some other other races. So not really from whites, but sometimes from other groups, uh, maybe here and there. But even that's quite harmless sort of petty kind of things as opposed to anything serious are there any are there any groups that you absolutely would not uh, marry into um i would not marry a black even though i like them i wouldn't marry into one i wouldn't ma- i mean to be honest i wouldn't marry any group who wasn't indian to be fair it just makes it a lot easier to marry into your own uh but in terms of absolute no-nos uh, i'd say uh, African, Afro-Caribbean, I'd say Somalis, I'd say Middle Easterners, I'd say uh, Southeast Asians, East Asians. Have you never even fancied a Somali before, though? Uh, I have. I, in fact, a lot of my crushes in school were Somali. Really? Uh, yes, they were. Uh, lovely, lovely ladies. But I wouldn't marry them and they wouldn't marry me either. What do you you like about them? Can you describe any of your crushes? Yes, uh, they were they had they had pretty eyes. Uh, They were uh, just the eyes. They had yeah, pretty eyes, massive foreheads, which I'm a fan of. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, They (laughs) they were quite developed. Um, They were quite built, which I liked. They were curvy. uh, Yeah, well, yeah, they were curvy. But I don't want to go did into they have, that um, much depth. Did they have huh? no? Did, well, I, I want to go into that. Did they have big boobs by any chance? Yes, they. Yes, yes, they did by chance. Um, uh, <laughs> bear in mind, uh, you know, I too was sixteen at the time, so I was the same age as them. I'm not being a creep. Um, and uh, yeah, and they're also quite nice. They can be quite. They can be quite like vicious, but if they like you, they're quite nice. So if they fancied you, they're quite nice to you, and you're quite nice to them. But other than that, they're quite cultural. So they they do follow the 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 set sort of standard of their religion slash culture. And I would like to think that I also follow the set culture and my religious principles. So nothing ever came out of it. Um, what What do you like and dislike in general about women? I like, uh, so what I don't like about women, I mean, to be honest with you, the things that I like about them are also the things that I kind of don't like about them when taken an extreme. So I like how, Women can be women can be quite nice and sensitive, and they can be quite you know they can make you feel certain things. Uh, but the problem is, 
when you start feeling them, Luke, you become less rational of a person. You give yourself to them. Uh, and the problem is, is that you build them up into this, like, you know, you, you idealize them in certain ways. And the problem is they're not that vision of your, that you have in your head. So they start becoming non-compliant. And sometimes they do it not because they want to behave a certain way, because they just want to antagonize you. They just want to go against you. That That's all. They don't want to give themselves to you because it feels like total self-surrender, especially with a lot of girls these days. They have a feeling that if they do that, they're somehow breaking some moral code of their own. Like, you know, oh, I can't do this for a guy, blah, 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 blah. And and yeah, so, so you know, it, it makes you feel like a fool at the end of it. Um, but but what I like about them, conversely, uh, 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 or whatever the right word is, is that they are quite soft natures. And most girls, I'd say, even the ones that might seem like they're being arseholes, are actually a lot better as people than most guys are. They've got more to offer. Uh, the, a lot of them are just lovely. They are just lovely. We know when I go to work, for example, I work in an environment that is 50-50, like male-female. And I, and I like working with women as opposed to men, uh, purely be, on, in one sense, because you go to them and it's just pleasant to see a girl. Whether or not they're attractive is almost irrelevant. Just it's pleasant to see a girl. They're just softer, they're nicer, blah, blah, blah. And they will talk to you and they are chatty and blah, blah, blah. With men, it's just you say two words and you get on with it. And we are not a particularly sociable group. Do you have like an ideal female archetype? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, uh, I think of uh, my ideal woman is uh, someone who is, first of all, someone who is chaste, like I am. Uh, someone who, <laughs> so someone who is again quite soft-spoken, quite uh, nice, but also, you know, not boring. Because you can you can cross the territory where there are girls who are who are kind of nice and soft and whatever, just because they're kind of boring. They've got nothing else going on. I like someone with a bit of verb, with a bit of oomph. Uh, you know, uh, you know, someone who does talk back a little bit, but knows when the appropriate time is to sort of, you know, scale it back and realize, you know what, actually, in a relationship as a partner, me and the guy are on the same side. So I shouldn't antagonize him or be hostile towards him every single time. Sometimes I should let the man lead and I should follow as is prescribed in the Bible, in the Quran, in the Vedas, in pretty much every important text that exists in human, you know, in, in humanity. Uh, and I like girls who are aware of that, but also I like girls who don't try and placate me, um, you know, who don't try and just do it because they think I like it, uh, that kind of thing, you know. Are you able to accurately judge when a woman is interested in you? No, I am terrible in judging when a woman is interested in me, purely because I say that uh, is I often find out way later in, 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 when I like by a friend or a colleague who tells me actually this person did actually fancy you and you're an idiot for not realizing that. And I go, oh, but then a part of me thinks, actually, I did know it at the time. I just didn't want to recognize it and, and do anything about it because that would take effort and effort might result in failure. So there's a bit of both. Maybe I'm good at it. Maybe I'm not. I just don't know. When it comes to romance and trying to you know, date, date a woman, have you typically erred on the side of passivity or too assertive? I'm afraid I didn't hear that. Yeah. Have you 
typically erred on the side of passivity or aggression with regard to pursuing women? Um, I wait until they pursue me. So I haven't been in a ton of relationships, uh, like whatever. But a lot of the times I have come close to one. It's often because a girl has shown her interest in me. Uh, and I pretend like I didn't understand it for a long time. I go, oh, oh, really? You fancy? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. And then I kind of become, so that's passive. That's the passive phase. And then once she's pursued me and I realize, actually, this girl is quite intense, is quite you know, into me. I become aggressive and I start becoming, I start becoming controlling. And I say, oi, uh, I told you to act this way and you are acting the other way. No, 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 no. And I pursue them aggressively after I, so after a period of passivity, I become aggressive. I'm a lot like HIV. And which tactics have you found to be effective with women and which tactics have you found to be ineffective? Practically, there are no tactics that are effective with women, except like if I'm being honest with you, <laughs> anything that's effective with women is tantamount to rape. That's like, you know, in terms of like actually getting them to whatever, the, 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 you know, trying to woo them over and blah, blah, blah. Like they could very, you know, as the gender that receives affection, it becomes very easy to become bored of that. So I don't blame women for the way they are. If, if I was the person that a bunch of people were pursuing and they had different tactics for it, some people were affectionate, some people were cold and distant, some people blah, blah, blah. If I recognized each and every single one of them as tactics, I would easily detach from every single one of them. I could easily go, actually, I choose someone else, blah, blah, blah. It's very easy for me to do that. Um, so none of, there are no tactics that are effective with every single woman it just depends on the girl in question so it depends entirely on the person you're talking to and how long is the longest relationship that you've had with a woman i'd say a year one year and what did you learn from it uh what did i learn from it i learned that i need to control my emotions that I need to be able to, uh, even if I'm angry, and I am often angry, to, to not show the anger to the woman. Uh, and, you know, more often than not, what they're looking for is a reaction. So if you don't give them that reaction, then they'll just be like, oh, okay, that's weird. He didn't react. Okay, maybe he doesn't care anymore. Blah, 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 and so on and so forth. So it seems to me, Dixon, that just as men despise fat women, women despise weak men. You think that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's a pretty, yeah, that's true. That's correct. And so where do you need to toughen up to be more successful with women, if anywhere? Mm. To be honest, I think I've already got a pretty good thing going in that I don't really approach women. I don't seek their affection so much. I don't seek their validation. I am somewhat of a narcissist, uh, which means that I oftentimes, uh, my, whatever good things I think about myself, self-perpetuate. Um, if anything, if there is something I need to do with women, it's to become slightly less myself and slightly more affectionate in, in, the, in the appropriate times that are needed. But with regards to strength and whether women, I think by and large, they're all products of they're all products of what you are physically as a male, what you can do in terms of how competent you are in the arena that you work in, whether that be finance or academia or 
or entertain whatever whatever the whatever it is it's a competency hierarchy uh, it's a physical hierarchy there is some emotional psychological things that come into it but they are all functions of physicality and competency and it's on its own right so you just have to work up that ladder to some degree uh, before you can even think about how women use you right so the most disturbing interactions for me are any any interactions that make me question my own level of competency like that's the, the most painful, hurtful thing that anyone can uh, say to me is to essentially point out that I'm incompetent in some important area of life. Uh, how competent are you at navigating life? I'd say I'm, I'm fairly competent at life. Uh, average, at above age. average for your age and your ethnic I'd say rate. above average, above mm -hmm. average for my age, yeah. I'd say I'm above average. And in what areas, if any, do you most want to grow, say, in the next five years with regard to competence? Professional competence. Mm -hmm. I want to get better at what I do purely because it will serve me and it will serve the people I'm meant to serve uh, in my job better if I get better at what I do. So for the last five years, I've earned right around six figures, sometimes more, sometimes less. If you feel comfortable, uh, how much do you earn? Okay, so the there's a whole. So I I'll give you a bit of context. I work as a doctor, uh, but I work in the NHS, so in the UK, um, and I'm an F1. So this is my first year as a doctor. So my salary is actually pretty pitiful uh, because we don't get paid a lot here. So my salary, roughly my base salary, so not including extra bonuses and overtime things like that is something roughly to thirty thousand pounds in my first year of working uh it increases a bit depends on how many night shifts and on calls and extra shifts i do but realistically it's a poor salary now poor salaries are a bad thing because no woman wants to be with someone who's not that whatever but actually if there was one profession or a set of professions you can get away with by having a poor salary, it's vocational professions. So professions where you look, you're, you're viewed as having or, or, or viewed as doing something noble or whatever by society. Yes. If you're a priest, if you're a priest, no one's going to go, oh, you're, you're, you're a brokey, ha ha. No, everyone's going to go, oh, you're, you're a priest. Well, okay. I mean, it'll be, do it'll be weird for you to make a lot of money. They might even look down on you if you make a lot of money as a priest. If you're a, you know, or a rabbi or whatever. If you're a if you're a doctor, they expect you to make a lot of money, and one day I will, as I progress through my career. But they see you as doing something good for society. At least most people view it as a a noble profession. So they might go, "Oh, well, you're doing something worthwhile. You're helping people out." You know, it's almost it's it almost adds to your nobility that you don't actually make that much by doing it, because then people don't think you're being cynical in how much you practice and how much tests you order and pharmaceutical companies and all that kind of crap so there's uh, that big people will treat you with respect i mean i i would i mean i you have like significantly leaped in my esteem upon finding out that you're a doctor that's the thing they find out they find out number one and and the, uh, the other thing is amongst my own colleagues i also went to a pretty pretty good university uh, like in terms of where i studied so even within my my cohort of doctors They'll hear, oh, you went here. Oh, okay. So you must, I mean, I'm not saying this is what it actually is, but I'm saying the, the perception is, oh, you must be quite smart then if you went, if you graduated from 
X university or whatever. So ultimately, it's made me realize that a lot of it is just perception-based hierarchies. You know, not wait, a bit, wait, not but that perception is based on reality. You are highly intelligent. What are you? One thirty-five IQ. I have never measured my IQ uh, ever um, directly. Anyways, I've done psychrometric tests that kind of overlap with mm -hmm. IQ as as part of university, but I've never actually done an actual IQ test. And if you were say offered a million dollars if you're able to estimate your IQ within 10 points like what's the most accurate guess that you would make I'd say I wouldn't mind saying something which the funny thing is I actually don't think my IQ is that high purely because of my spatial reasoning uh, so I'd have to I'd have to say something like 120 to 130 uh, or not or even 120 maybe even that's probably what I think because I look at the different aspects of an iq test and i look at the different aspects of any psychometric test which is basically a verbal reason you've got qualitative sorry quantitative reasoning but then you've got spatial analysis i think the spatial reasoning is probably where i'll get docked points but so i'm, I'm happy to say i'm above average iq uh comfortably above average but not i'm not genius level iq or anything what's it like interacting with people who are at least one standard deviation 15 iq points higher than you that depends because a lot of times people who are a lot are very very intelligent tend to have just difficulty communicating so the problem isn't so much that they're smarter the problem is they actually can't communicate how smart how much smarter they are uh you know so you look at them and you go this person's a bit of an idiot actually but when in, but in reality they're actually very smart it's just they have a tr difficult time conveying that to you do you remember? Um, yeah. Do you remember the last time you were intimidated by somebody's level of intelligence? Oh, every day, every day, because purely because you work with people who are uh, number one intelligent, but number two who are also your seniors. So they've spent a lot more years working than you have. So they know so much more than you, and they know their 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 sort of computing time is a lot shorter than yours. Purely because they've worked here for longer, so their their brain knows all the shortcuts to take to get to the same outcome that you need to. So every day I'm intimidated by someone who's who's smarter than me. But at the same time, you become you become used to recognizing when someone is actually smarter than you and when someone's actually just showing their intelligence as opposed to what they actually have on the inside. So you make that sort of sort of delineation. Right. And, and how did you have to grow? Like, how did you have to overcome your own natural tendencies to reach the level that you've reached? Uh, torturing myself, basically. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you, if you're, if you go to a, a really good university and a very competitive course, you're often surrounded by people who just, you know, who will just, who are competitive, who will make you feel like you're, you're lagging behind in a race before it's even started. So you might do some things to compensate. Uh, sometimes people think I'll just work a bit harder. I've never been a fan of working harder um, purely because to me, I, I can't spend three to four more times the t like the effort than someone else can. I haven't got that much motivation in me. So what I do is I just think to myself, where am I comfortable being? Where do I want to get to like in terms of it, like attainment and, and what's the, what's the quickest path I can get to there whilst conserving as much energy as possible. And for me, that's always been just, you know what, I would, if, if there was, um, let's say, in the, in a, for an exam or, some, or for an interview, I need to cover this much content. 
but then I'll, I'll look at myself and say, actually, I only need to cover this much content, a fraction of it, and I'll be able to get through the rest of it. And I'll, and that's how I allocate. So I allocate my, my energy appropriately is what I'd say. Was the overall British establishment response to COVID uh, better than average, average or below average in your estimation? I'd say below average is a good, below average, yeah. So I would say above average, but I'm not a, a doctor. I would say it was a, above average in that we got a, a vaccine in record time and we, we had less death than would have been expected. That There was finally uh, the implementation of lockdown procedures, which I believe on average did more, no, more good than harm. What's your basis for saying below average? I think it's partly because... Um, purely because of the way it was communicated. My issue isn't so much in, my issue isn't so much what we did. It's in so much on how it was communicated. So that is, that is also part of the response to COVID. It's, it's a big part of its communication. The UK sucks at PR. It sucks at communicating. It sucks at, and it's part of it's actually the faults of healthcare providers, not even politicians. Part of it's the problem with healthcare providers. Honestly, um, we overstepped our bounds quite early on and, 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 we downplayed it early on and then we we then overcorrected and kind of made it sound so much more serious way too late compared to other European countries. Um, I think overall our response was OK. I think you're right about the vaccine thing. I'm happy that, you know, we were able to roll it out quickly uh, relative to other countries. I think in part that has to do with the fact that we are a single um, provider healthcare system that allows us to negotiate these things a lot quicker than countries that don't function the same way. Um, so the NHS on average is able to negotiate a lot more efficiently than most organizations or most countries can purely because it's one organization. So it's very, it's very, it's very unitary in the way that it approaches things that allowed us to sort of standardize our, 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 our approach to COVID a lot better than most countries did. But that being said, we did have a lot of casualties early on. Uh, but I think that's also a function of our population. We just have a very, at, we just had in a more at-risk population than most countries did. So I wouldn't put much stock into that, really, in terms of overall debts. Um, and we recovered quite well from COVID, to be fair, as a, as, a, as a country. But it was still below average, purely because I think that there's more that we could have done um, in the way that we communicated our response compared to other countries. Because we love to talk a lot in this nation. That's the issue. So within about uh, two minutes of talking with you, I, I realized that I liked you and I respected you. Uh, at what point did you realize, if ever, that that was true? Or do you think I'm lying to you? Uh, no, I, no, I believe you, first, first and foremost. I don't, I think, I think from the moment I spoke, I think you would have, you'd like me purely because most people do like me when I speak. So I, yeah. I never doubted that, you know, it's, it's not, you know, so I'd say from minute one, let's say. And when I tell you I respect you, do you do you think I'm lying or do you think I'm telling the truth? No, I, I take your word for it. I don't I don't tend to think people have ulterior motives. I believe you. And I think of myself as someone who's worth worthy of some respect. So they all kind of match. OK, great. So I'm going to wrap up the show for today. Is there anything that you want to say in our final minute or two? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, uh, you know, it was a great time. I enjoyed speaking to you and hopefully I can do that in the future as well. Good luck with the rest of your streaming. Yeah. Thanks, Dixon. I'd really like to have you back and uh, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye. Cheers.